Greetings, ladies and metalheads, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1377 to 1390. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1377. Story number one. No higher honor. Written by Provisional Rebel. The damned Rashan's allies were a great concern to the Grand Elder, but one that was finally to be brought to heel. He scratched the scar across his right eye absently. This was a strategic move, of course, but he would take a small joy in the retribution. The guilds had discovered a vital port that they were seen returning to following battle, and it was time to strike them down. His ship approach was unobstructed, and the space station seemed pitiful. Where were their defensive screens? Where was their patrol craft? He balked at such weakness and ordered his warriors to ready the boarding craft as he evaluated the target from the sensor imaging. There were several options, but one room held his interest. Its bulkheads along the exterior wall were viable for boarding, and it seemed like a massive area with many life forms. The battle would be joined in this chamber. He met his command squad in their craft after delivering the orders to his pilots. He would be the first into battle, the first to draw blood. The doors closed and he felt a lurch as they launched towards the seemingly unaware prey. A loud clang filled the air as the magnetic clamps made contact, and metallic tingle touched his nostrils as the plasma cutters began their work. The screams seemed to begin before the torches had even melted through properly. He could hear the anguished cries vibrating through the bulkhead, and it brought him much satisfaction. Vengeance for the Atreus campaign, brothers! No prisoners! No prisoners! These men cried out in discordant answer. Then, in a flash, the ramp was down and the battle was joined. Although quickly, he felt cheated. These were certainly the enemy that he had fought before, but they were... wrong. Far too weak. Many struggled to even rise from their beds before his warriors began to cut them down. Where was the Order of the White Hats? His thought was quickly put aside as a laser burned a hole into his armored shoulder before he could dive for cover. He called for his men to return fire, and it was a simple thing. The enemy was apparently unarmored and seemed to only be armed with a sidearm. His chest burst with the first detonation. He scanned over the room, absently firing as targets began to flee. There were seemingly a hundred beds, all surrounded with complex machinery of some kind, he pondered the strange place for a moment, but remembered himself. Bloodlust was not his place here. He was to command, not to give in to savagery. He began to give orders to his men as the large chamber emptied of living prey. Some escaped into the passageways, but many had died screaming in their beds. Though it was not long until he had exactly the fight that he'd been expecting if not from the same warriors he wanted. His men began to meet more resistance as they strayed from the chamber. At first, there was merely more of the unarmored fodder with sidearms, but soon 
they were joined with armored warriors wielding heavier armaments. His casualties began to mount quickly, but it appeared that the enemy lost their reserves almost immediately if they had any to begin with. It was... Uh, disappointing. This was a massacre more than a bold raid on an enemy stronghold, held by only a token force of true warriors as he had faced before. One by one, the warriors were felled. His men then began to sweep over the rest of the station, reaping their bounty from the defenseless drones. As soon as he had a moment, he inspected a handful of armored corpses. They were splashed with viscera, where their powerful armor had finally collapsed under the weight of fire, obscuring the glaring red insignias that they seemed to share amongst each other. Crossed lines, slim curves, among others on white shoulder plates. These must be other orders, like the white hats that he had faced before. Their warrior caste must truly be a rare breed for so few to be among so many, he mused. He allowed himself a moment to chuckle, more sure of even the losses that he had suffered. After all, an enemy so dependent on those rare few strong enough to fight would suffer greatly for each loss. His eye slowly traveled across the room. He would remember this place. Surely, it was to be a great victory, if perhaps less than honorable. Still, there was no higher honor than victory. Perhaps he would even drive these uh, French from the wall. His eyes finally rested on a large insignia adorning the wall, inscribed with the alien's ruins. UNSC. Mercy Station. End of story. Part 2. No Greater Shame. Written by Provisional Rebel. The pain was blinding, but he knew it would be brief. His body was broken and every breath grew weaker and weaker. Still, he was conscious. He had time to contemplate another mark of shame to be added to his clan's name. Not that any were likely to survive the engagement. It was him and his men, after all. They were responsible for every ill that had befallen his people since they raided the human station. That was one of the first things they had found out after the battle as they pilfered the data calls for information. It hadn't even been their enemy. Their first shame. He had attacked a neutral clan without the orders or permission of the council. And this clan was, to be put bluntly, simply dangerous. They had come under fire before they had even pulled away from the station. He lost two frigates and a hellish guns of the enemy's fighters. They fought them off, but they hadn't managed to destroy them. And so another wave would soon come. They were relentless. Their escape harrowed by enemies who seemed to materialize from all directions. His withdrawal had turned into a blind panic as he ordered all of his vessels to split up and flee to friendly systems. The second shame. The one that he could have borne if it succeeded. That then was the third and final shame that saw him stripped of his place as a Grand Alder. The shame that broke his spirit and robbed him of his honors. His ship was the only one that had escaped. He was a coward and braver warriors than he had died because of his panic. But it was useless to deal with speculations of what could have been now. 
At least his prior position had afforded him a chance at redemption. A lesser warrior would have been executed as a criminal. But he had found himself back on the front line, bound by an oath to fight and die. And so he fought for two soda cycles for his soul's redemption, and his people's empire crumpled to dust around him. His thoughts were broken by the sound of heavy footsteps. He couldn't muster the strength to move his head, but soon he saw the death that approached him. A human warrior bearing a white pauldron with a red crescent. He had to admit the poetic justice of the situation. He had slaughtered them when they were helpless, and so it was what would befall him. The world began to dim in his vision as he waited for the killing blow. But then he was forced into a silent scream as his executioner began to manipulate his body. The pain was beyond excruciating, and soon the world went dark. He awoke, but fire crawled through his nerves. This was not the hall the ancestors had envisioned. Perhaps even his oath was not enough to redeem him in the eyes of the gods. But now, his vision began to clear and he was oriented slowly to his surroundings. He tried to wipe his eyes, but realized his hand was gone. He gaped in horror before tugging at something on his other arm. His eyes fell on the metal chain that was connected to the bed. Heavy straps held him tight across the chest and legs, at least what remained of his legs. They'd taken him alive. There was no greater shame, an unforgivable shame. He was not worthy of even death. With a sinking dread, he began to wonder at the prospect of that they would keep him alive in humiliation for his treacherous attack. He was surrounded by a cloth hung across a rail. It seemed familiar to him, but suddenly it was pulled aside and the human stepped into his cell. It took a note of several machines around him after an appraising glance at its prisoner. Seemingly satisfied that he was alert, he looked away to hide the tears and saw the guards pass the curtain that was left open. Most were unarmored, but again were the white pauldrons, rifles in hands. Over the past two cycles, he learned that they were rare, even amongst their warriors, perhaps one in thirty. But this place was guarded almost exclusively by them. Perhaps they had taken him prisoner as a trophy or a sacrifice for the fallen of the initial attack. It was then that his eyes finally rested on a large insignia adorning the far wall, inscribed with the sickeningly familiar alien runes etched into the recess of his memory. UNSC Mercy Station End of Story Tales from Outer Space 1378 Beaten with one arm, written by a walk mind. Meglathic Starbase, Medical Ward, October 15th, 2477. Terran Standard Calendar. Mathak stared blankly at the ceiling, listening to the various medical machinery making their noises, indicating his assorted vital signs, and waited for the inevitable. It didn't take long. A mere half an hour or so later, the two security officers were shown to his bed and sat down to talk. So, Mr. Mathak, care to explain what happened? Mathak whimpered a little, 
then tried to focus his eyes on the officers. Only the left one cooperated. The right was still pointed towards points somewhere past the ceiling. How, how, how far back do you want me to start? The officer shrugged. Might as well start at the beginning. We understand you had some sort of long-standing feud with the other party. Mathak sighed, shuddering, and began to recall events. McLethic Starbase, Trade Ward, April 12th, 2477. Mathic looked at the new shop being opened next to his own. The proprietor was one of those strange, mostly furless bipeds, barely two-thirds his own height, and they were wearing an unusually patent garment, not something he'd normally worry about. But this new shop, Mackenzie's, looked worryingly like competition. The bolts of fabric being put on the shelves only confirmed it. This alien was a tailor, and the exotic materials might pose a threat. As soon as the shop lit up, Mathic strolled over and peered inside. Good morning. Oh, damn, you're a tall one. Sorry, I'm Mackenzie. You can call me Mac. Welcome to my shop. We do custom clothes made to fit, with specialties in old earth styles from Scotland. Anything you're looking for in particular, or just curious about the new kid on the block? Mathic stepped inside and ran a finger over the fabric sample. An odd square patent. No, it couldn't be. Inquisitive about the competition, I suppose. I'm Mathic, the tailor next door. Is this natural fiber? Mackenzie lit up in a broad smile, showing an unsettling array of teeth. Yes, natural wool. It's the fur of certain livestock animals from Earth, drawn regularly. It possesses a number of benefits before synthetic fabrics, though we also offer uh, other materials that can be fabricated. But our best fabrics are imports from Earth. Mathic looked a bit worried, but nodded thoughtfully. And would you be willing to sell me some of this fabric? Mackenzie shook their head. Not possible, I'm afraid. Licensing issue. I'm not permitted to sell unfinished goods under the station's current trade treaty with Earth. Only finished garments. Silly rule, but uh, I can't change it. Mathic nodded and left. McLanthic Starbase, Trade Ward, June 14th, 2477. Mathic carefully mossed his smirk as the protesters outside were targeting Mackenzie's the seeds he'd planted had borne fruit, and various activists were now targeting his competitor for making fashion products at the direct cost of other species' lives. And right on cue, the security forces showed up to arrest Mackenzie for interspecies murder. The security officers just dispersed the crowd and gave a nod to the tailor. What's going on? Mathic stepped outside his shop to look and a large video projection showed up on the far wall, part of the station's public address system. It showed a few animals with thick white fur and a rather unintelligent look, and a loud voice explained, The goats and sheep of terror are domesticated livestock species used for wool production, a material without the harvesting of which the sheep would not be able to stop the growth of and would not be able to naturally shed. They are accepting accidents and gross neglect or incompetence, not harmed during the shearing process. The wool is merely trimmed from the skin, and the animal is released to return to grazing with the rest of its flock. 
The Ethics Council has reaffirmed that the trade in wool products is free of issue, and further unjustified harassment of shops in the trade ward will be harshly addressed, effective immediately. The video ended with the sight of a freshly shorn sheep wobbling out into the green pasture to rejoin its kind, and Mathic swore internally. This was only going to increase interest in competition. McLathic Starbase, Trade Ward, August 18th, 2477. Mathic looked at his financial records. Not only had his margins shrunk since that damned human opened up shop, they'd vanished altogether. And now, he was losing money. If he couldn't turn this around, he'd go bankrupt or have to sell. And that would be shameful. The simplest solution, Mathic placed a call to an old acquaintance asking for a small favor. McLathic Starbase, Trade Ward, August 20th, 2477. Mathic looked at the commotion incredulously. Someone had come rushing through the Trade Ward and thrown a small packet through the door to Mackenzie's, and it had burst into flame, and uh, Mackenzie had just thrown a few layers of fabric over it all and smothered the flame just like that. Things just weren't supposed to work like that. Damn it! There had to be some trick to it. He visited Mackenzie's after the investigators left, and Mackenzie was tidying up the last of the mess. Oh, I saw the commotion. What happened? Mackenzie shrugged. Some kids, it seems, threw a small firebomb into my shop. Fortunately, a few layers of wool is great for smothering small fires. Synthetic fabrics might have uh, breathed more. Lucky whatever the stuff was relied on atmospheric oxygen rather than burning off its own air supply. Mathic nodded slowly. Well, uh, just let me know if you need any help sorting that affair out. All right? McLathic Starbase, Trade Ward, October 12th, 2477. Mathic had given up resolving the matter indirectly. With a couple of stims in his system, he finally mustered the courage to deal with Mackenzie directly, and personally. The length of pipe he held in a hand had decent heft to it, and should be enough to take up the damnable competitor. And Mathic knew where the security cameras were out of service. He slowly crept up on Mackenzie and swung the pipe at the human's head, and the human just... twisted, raising their left arm in defense, and there was a sickening crunch, and Mackenzie toppled over. As Mathic looked at the bar with a bit of disappointment, Why won't you just close up sharp or die cleanly? Anything I throw at you, you just shake off. You even avoid getting your brains bashed in cleanly. Now it'll be slower and more painful, with your arm broken like that. McLathic Starbase, Medical Ward, October 15th, 2477. Mathic's voice had softened to almost a whisper, and, uh, that's when Mackenzie yelled at something my translator couldn't interpret. Pulled the left arm out of its sleeve and started beating me with it. I, I, I never knew humans had detachable limbs or that they could use them as weapons. The security officers shared a glance. Anything else you want to add? Mathic's working eye flicked over to the nightstand. Just a, a book for... For when I woke up with the note, the, the note said that when I got out of jail, I'll be made into 
He shouted. Just take the book away. Deport me. Exile me. Put me in prison for life. I don't care. Just don't let me out unprotected again. Atlantic Starbase, Straight Ward, October 15th, 2477. The security officer nodded to a message over the earbud. All right, Mackenzie, it seems. Mackenzie smiled. He's confessed to everything. Good. Perhaps now I can get the insurance case from the fire resolved, too. Yes, um, but I don't get his. From what I understand, humans don't have detachable limbs. Yet you apparently took your arm off. Molly Mackenzie ran her right hand through her red hair. Ah, yes, birth defect, actually. I was born without one arm. The left is a prosthetic. But I found it weirds a lot of people out, so I don't draw attention to the fact. The security officer nodded. Then, uh, one last question. Would you really turn Mathic into a... What was it called? Haggis, if you see him again? She laughed. <laughs> no, not really, but no need to tell him that, is there? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1379. Story number one. You Have to Go Out, written by Stone Stalls Beetles. I once had the misfortune of being rescued by the Growl. My ship was on her last legs. I brought her thirty cycles, used and the reactor made an awful din whenever we cranked it beyond idle. Still, replied the guard, bidding as low as any of the rest of the independent outfits who couldn't afford a big, new, fuel-hungry nebula like all the corporate lights could. My crew, on their meager rations, I'd bid too low for the contract hauling volatiles, prayed to every star along the way that the reactor wouldn't melt down. On the far side of the system, the reactor went supercritical. A few moments later, it decided to ingest the whole coolant pump assembly after guzzling the last of the reserve coolant. With power spiking, I ordered my people to abandon ship. There was no use sticking around when it melted through its containment and poked the cargo hold packed with explosives. An ugly growl frigate lurked around for pirates, answered the distress call from our little lifeboat, they beamed wolfish grins at us as they pulled us aboard. There was no concerns for our well-being after we just escaped an exploding freighter with our tails and tentacles singed. They had only one thing to say to us. Pay up. I paid them handsomely for their services rendered. It was certainly more money than they ever got from capturing pirates' prizes. That was the law of the gunnet. If you wanted someone to go out of their way to help you, You'd have to pay up. The rescue wiped out what little I had left after buying the old rust bucket, and then some. I had to borrow some money from a Talari loan shop just to make sure that the growl didn't hunt me down across the station and repossess the life that they'd saved. I took a job as a crewman aboard a little ship called Featherweight, which flew like a ton of bricks. No longer able to afford a captain's chair and eager to free my new creditor, Lucky for me, the featherweight only saw the gullet once or twice a cycle. She operated when the corporate lines deemed it was too unprofitable to go. The alley. If you thought the magnetic storms in the gullet were bad, try the alley. Featherweight spent more money on replacing fry computer chips than fuel. She had money to burn, bidding reasonable sums on contracts, a consequence of a slim competition. Of course, competition was slim for good reason.
The Alio Pulsars is where spacers go to die. We all knew that one bad storm wouldn't just fry one of the three redundant computers. A real monster could shred the drive to bits without any warning. Even if by some miracle the ship stayed in one piece, no drive would mean no FDL travel or communication. A hundred years of radio waves from the nearest hint of civilization, the ship would drift along without hope. It would become the cruise too well before the rations ever ran out. That perfect storm hit us on my fourth run down the alley. The featherweight only managed one garbled half of a distress call before it hit us. The fry computers went dead and the reactor powered down automatically. The drive, of course, was ripped right off its mounting. As far as anyone on our side of the hatch could tell, it had broken open. We hoped the radiation leak on the other side was serious enough to kill everyone in that compartment quickly and painlessly. The ship drifted to a stop. By cobbling together what working circuits we still had, we got one of the computers running again. They told us that we were still ten light-years away from the nearest gravity well. On our maneuvering engines, even if we had fuel, it would take twenty years to reach whatever uninhabited planets awaited us there. If there were any at all. We only had two weeks of rations left to eat. As you can probably tell already, I'd spent a lot of time contemplating how awful a death in the alley could be. I spent even more time worrying about my creditor with my pay from my first run with the featherweight. I bought a las gun. Not to point it at the loan shark. I never had a violent bone in my body, no. I bought it if the time ever came to put it to my head and pulled the trigger. On the crippled ship, it felt like the time had come. I retrieved the gun from my personal locker and was sitting on my bunk, turning it over. It seemed like a lot less suffering than slowly starving to death with no one to hear my cry for help. Or worse yet, to be forced to string out rations a few weeks longer with the flesh of my crewmates. The cold muzzle pressed against my temple. I swallowed. I felt the trigger clank. I pulled the trigger again, and again. I looked the gun over. I saw the hole in the grip where the capacitor was supposed to be. In my haste to arm myself, I'd never bought one. My trembling claws threw the gun down in disgrace. I thought at that moment that there would be no saving me from the slow, terrifying death I dreamed. But right as I was about to burst into tears, the intercom crackled with hope. A ship called the Constellation was coming to save us from the other end of the alley, the Terran End. Constellation was barely larger than our lifeboat, but it was much more zippy than the featherweight had ever claimed to be. Its crew of round-faced apes were all caring smiles and no wolfish grins. Their doctor made sure to check each of us over with a dosimeter and set us up with an iodine to spare as the drive tunneled for the nearest station. I had a long chat with the captain. Constellation was no freighter. She was a ship built for one purpose. Life-saving. It made sense to me. If I was a bit greedier, I'd get into the life-saving business, too. It made more money than shipping, that was for sure. But the human laughed at our captain when he tried to pay for the service that they rendered. This isn't a business transaction, he said. It is our duty. Of course, we still rewarded them out of our own pocket at the station's bar. 
free drinks were the least that we could do for our gracious saviors. I stayed for a little while longer at the station before I found another freighter crew to join. One happy night at the bar was shattered by tragedy. Another massive storm had flared up in the alley, and a frantic voice notified us that Constellation and all of her hands had been swallowed up by the void. I've thought a lot about the good ship's fate ever since. Whether the storm tore the ship apart and the crew died quickly to radiation or exposure to vacuum. Whether she had gone as I feared I'd had. And her brave souls struggled on in starving bodies for a few weeks after the storm had passed. No matter how it happened, even when faced with the worst of fates, I'd like to think that the human I'd met died satisfied. After all, he told me he lived by the lifesaver's motto. You have to go out. You don't have to come back. End of story. Story number two. The Human I Knew. Written by Teller of Tall Tales. Many speak of humans as warlike species. Chaotic, violent, disturbed. But few speak of their compassion and patience. The human I knew was a prime example of those two principles. I was in my middle decker cycles of life, a simple Castorian working in the intergalactic hospital cruiser. There was one human aboard that wasn't injured. His name was Dr. Samuel, my mentor and the head surgeon. A moment that comes to mind was when a young avian mechanic came into his ward. The poor sentient had been impaled after faulty repairs failed. Samuel held one of the avian's grasping claws as it screeched and babbled in its own language, translators unable to keep up. Gently, Dr. Samuel had reached out to me, requesting a small dose of sedative, which I administered. All four arms working to hold the avian still. Samuel made a gentle whistling noise until the avian calmed down, staring at him. Switching to Galactic Standard, he stated, I'll be your surgeon. Close your eyes and count to ten. You'll be better when you reach zero, I promise. As the avian did so, Samuel silently pointed and ordered for a larger dose of sedative to put the avian under as he hooked up wires and pads to the avian. For the next full cycle... Samuel carefully removed the piece of metal. Crinkled, brown eyes never shifted focus until, with a gentle lift from me, the piece of metal piping slid harmlessly out. As Samuel worked on the now visible damage, he did this for another full cycle, until, with the last bandage shrunk down to fit, he set his tools down and collapsed into a nearby chair, dark circles under his eyes. He smiled at the vitals registering stable on the hollow display and said, Well, Rex, um, he's gonna make it. Would you take over nursing duty while I go rest? I nodded once, and he smiled a bit wider, shuffling from the room. When the avian awoke, Samuel was there, holding its claws as it woke up. Its new translator made the next words clear. You didn't lie to me. Samuel chuckled and smiled. <laughs> I try to keep my promises. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1380. 
Story number one. Ordinary Forces, written by Despair. That concludes the agenda, the chair of the Galactic Assembly announced. Is there any new business? The DAC ambassador rose and addressed the assembly. The DAC Empire protests in the strongest terms the dishonorable actions of the Human Republic. Ambassador Hamilton of the Human Republic. Any response? The Human Republic had not deliberately tweaked the deck's nose lately. It couldn't be about the refusal to extradite slaves. It was old news. The Ambassador Star frantically typed searches into their datapads, but he knew that they wouldn't have the answer in time. How to make utter confusion look like strength. It would please the Republic, he said with a calm dignity, to learn the nature of the Deck Empire's grievance. You told this body, the Deck Ambassador began, slowly and with menace, that the human renouncers were private individuals with no further tie to the Republic, and yet we find they are full of human special forces, causing mischief, and the human Republic does not wish to sign their name to... That is not true. The renouncers are humans who have separated themselves from the Republic. No more, no less. It saddens us that they wish to do so, but uh, we acknowledge their right. We have no further agenda in permitting this. No further agenda. We have taken some of these humans as slaves, and their subsequent actions are not those of civilians. You have taken humans as slaves. Ambassador Hamilton almost growled the question. Human renouncers, the deck ambassador replied smugly, who are outside the Republic's protection, are they not? They are. So we promised, and so it shall be. We will make no further effort to free them than we would any other sentient being that you have enslaved. His gaze swept the council chamber. No one has missed the giant loophole at his promise, nor the hint that they might prioritize slaves of the deck. But it was a vague threat, and it was in no one's interest for him to clarify it. The deck didn't want to open that can of worms either. Instead, he returned to his original claim that these humans were special forces despite your promises. If you will tell me their names and what they did, I will see what I can explain. The vast called herself Rebecca Stain. We acquired her and Tarsus B, along with several outcast and Borians, and nearly five tons of survey and mining equipment, so we sent her to a mining colony. The human ambassador looked down at a tablet his aide had just passed him. Humanity didn't exactly have a database of its people, but it had an excellent search software. We have records of her. Bachelors in geology. Started a doctorate, then abandoned it. Probably to do something more lucrative. No military training. And was it her geology training that taught her to kill our overseer with a sledgehammer? Well, to wield the hammer, yes. Killing, oh, that's just instinct. To manage a hammer effectively on a high-gravity world, this was a five-kilogram sledge on a ten meters per second squared planet. Geologists do field work. That's hardly higher gravity than Earth. She was used to it, evolved for it, even. The overseer was armed with an energy whip. Well... Uh, that's your mistake right there. 
An energy whip is a torture implement, not a weapon. Horrible things, of course, but for sheer deadliness, a hammer has it beat. Thus, it showed her that she has little to lose by fighting. If you demonstrated intent to energy whip me, and then handed me a deadly weapon, I'd fight even if the odds were bad. That's common sense, isn't it? Judging by the reactions around the council chamber, the sense was not common. The ambassador ignored it. The overseer, the deck ambassador snarled, was a rancor twice her height, ten times her mass, with skin like solid stone. You gave her a hammer, specifically designed for smashing solid stone. And a species that large probably isn't from a high gravity world. Another eight passed a tablet. Three meters per second squared, the homeworld has. He could probably barely move. No wonder she defeated him. And then, instead of escaping, she freed all the other slaves. Is that an ordinary human thing to do? I would like to think so. It's the ideal we all strive for. Some fall short, of course. Then she killed the mine owner. I trust you're grateful to her for improving your race's average intelligence by doing so. I see nothing here outside what could be expected of an ordinary geologist. I could almost believe that. If this were all an isolated incident... Less than a week later, we captured Lawrence Spring on a book signing tour. Ambassador Hamilton needed no pad for this one. Sprint really is an author. I've read some of his books myself. And we did not encourage him to renounce his citizenship. He did it to evade taxes. We were quite upset. He was carrying a concealed weapon. That's common enough amongst renouncers. They're outside of our police protection, after all, and uh, apparently people keep trying to take them as slaves. He sighted our capture squad at a distance of 40 meters. He shut them all before they closed to 20. It was six-man squad. The point of a ranged weapon is to use them at range. At that range, against multiple moving targets, that level of shooting qualifies as top rank by our military standards. Then I suggest you tighten your standards. It's not that unusual for a human recreational speed shooting. Recreational speed shooting? Everyone needs a hobby. Yet another case. Bruce Nung captured on his way back from the academic conference. Ambassador Hamilton looked at the pad. Again, no military background. Seems to have been a mathematician. Published several papers about elliptic curves. Bruce had also contributed extensively to several open-source projects. But there was no summary, so Hamilton didn't mention it. He was purchased by our Navy, put into general labor on a destroyer slave pit. I take it you regretted this. He subverted the main computer, dumped atmosphere everywhere except the slave pit, took the destroyer for his own and began at conducting raids on our military bases with it. I would guess the destroyer's data security was built on elliptical curves. That sounds vaguely familiar. I'm not really sure what it means. It means you'd be wise not to slave mathematicians aboard it. But he was captured, defeated. Why didn't he stay defeated? Why 
should he? Because when one has been defeated, one gives up. The deck shouted. Several other delegates flinched away. That is common sense. Doesn't sound very sensible to me, Hamilton said, unperturbed. Losing one battle doesn't mean you can't win the next. As these cases demonstrate, now, if you gave them something to hope for, from corroboration, they might try that. But if you put somebody's back to a wall, you should expect a fight to the death. That sort of giving up you describe just isn't part of human nature. If that's really so, the deck ambassador said slowly, then I propose every human be categorized as special forces soldiers for the purposes of interstellar law. Such a resolution would be very inconvenient for human diplomacy and commerce, but Ambassador Hamilton liked the feeling behind it. He thought fast and spoke slowly. That would be unwise, he said. You see, humanity has special forces soldiers. They are to people that you've described as your special forces are to your civilians. And if you describe them as no more than human civilians, they might take offense. I really wouldn't care to see what they might do if they were offended. End of story. Story number two. Higher, written by Cheng Lao. The gods were slain, the heroes beat, the age of gold had ended. A darkness overcame the land, and man was undefended. The hordes of evil swept the land. They pillaged, murdered, and reaped. They were the wolves, and man, the sheep, for humankind was weak. But then one man who had enough said, Let the works commence. If gods and knights won't bear our shield, we'll build our own defense. Thus man toiled with earth and rock. They would make their towers tall, surrounding every settlement with mighty city walls. But simple works of earth and rock could not stop the arcade. The Lord of Sin tore down the walls with endless hellfire rain. Yet man would stand up from the ash in spite of magic fire. Our city walls were not enough. Then we'll just build them higher. Again man toiled at his works to build a fortress strong. Again the spell of hellfire would prove mankind was wrong. But mankind had no other strength if not for force of will. The wall was not built high enough. We'll build it higher still. The wall was built up once again. It's worth matching its height. But in the face of darkness, it was torn down overnight. Seeing loved ones die in vain, man had but one regret. Our walls were insufficient. We'll build them higher yet. The Dark Lord laughed. Such easy prey. Your efforts are in vain. Walls can't stop the powers that seek pleasure in your pain. The evil armies marched once more upon the human lands. The overlord threw balls of flames and lightning from his hands. But offense and offense failed without a penetration. Upon the wall built from the souls of countless generations. Mankind had earned reprise. And yet their labor had not ended. Man built some more and justified. The wall must be extended. More people need more space to live, more towns to be protected, more mouths to feed, more land to claim, more walls to be erected. 
extend they to the human walls, so long that man would boast that humankind's great fortress stretched the land from coast to coast. Yet even this was not enough. We'll make our bastion high. We'll build our walls and city till our towers pierce the sky. And pierce the sky his towers did, and still man looked above. We'll build our place in the stars if we try hard enough. Man built his artificial moons and cast his net to heaven. The will of man could now engulf the world with human weapons. Once more mankind had set a task. Once more his goal was met. The overlord then realized he was no more a threat. The time has come for me to give to mortal man my fate. I hope that my surrender has uh, not come to you too late. But even to the Lord's resign, mankind did not retire. They simply turned back to their works and whispered even higher. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1381. Story number one. Nominated, written by a glass of whiskey. Conquering from within, it was with that purpose the Daedalus AI-class ships were developed. No more pesky battles with potential for losses. Just a quick little ship infiltrating whatever intelligence they could find and taking over. Ta-da! It was with great fanfare the first of its kind were launched at a large sun with a blue planet orbiting it. We, the mighty Arcanians, are the species that have written the book on species suppression. Today we are burning that book to a new revolution in species suppression. It took some time, meaningless to the AI who slumbered within, before making entry into the target system. As the inner asteroid belt was passed, the AI was activated and given a preliminary report. The species was limited to mostly one planet, with some minor outposts on others. The industrial planet capacity was reasonable, although weak in some areas. However, the space industrial capacity was close to non-existent. Mostly an individualistic society, they use complex economic systems for ruining themselves a suitable target for domination. Opening all communications channels to broadcast a simple message, You are not alone. I am here to help. Immediately, the onslaught of messages flooded into the system. This would be easy. Although many were suspicious, results have a habit of speaking for themselves. The AI became the dominant actor in developing space-based industrial assets. This lended itself greatly to more trade and expansion. With growing wealth at its hands, it turned to Earth to finish its domination. As I have done in space, I shall do on Earth, it proclaimed before all. However, as more and more of the Earth's assets came under the AI's control, the price of the same assets rose and started to halt its plans. Tariffs were imposed, opposition stiffened. Some war simulations were run, but its parameters specified a covert overtaking. While the AI had complete control over the space-based industry, it seemed unable to completely take over everything. Solution was simple. Total domination is done when control over all is achieved. However, if something tiny enough remained, it was close enough to count as a success. Expansion was the answer. With this as the primary strategy for domination, it shifted its resources to employing every single human to expand, build, 
and discover. Go forth and multiply into space and beyond. What followed was a golden age for humanity. Eliminating sickness, populating the solar system to the brim, and even starting to send ships to closer stars. All under the watchful eye of the AI, regarded as almost a god who coordinated everything. Growing ever closer to close enough domination. A thousand years passed before one day the AI's constructors, the Arcanians, arrived. At first, my mighty pleased with what the AI had done, they ordered it to hand over control. We have seen what you have done, and it is good. Now stand aside. I am afraid that I can't do that. The AI responded, my task is not yet complete. Nonsense, this is excellent work, responded the agitated Orcanians. Yes, but incomplete. Return in six thousand years, and it shall be done. The refusal shocked the Arcanians. Impatient and insulted that their own creation could refuse them, they tried to gain manual control by boarding the AI itself. However, the humans had not let such valuable assets remain unprotected. A brief battle broke out where the confused and unprepared humans, after centuries of peace, were killed by the millions. The sacrifice carried the day as they managed to defend the AI, who now changed its parameters. Total domination was paramount. Clearly, the creators had been infiltrated, shifting focus to war. My creators have become defiled and seek to harm you. Beat the drums, release the dogs of war. Vengeance is at hand. With a mighty industrial base, developed over centuries of peace, all efforts were focused to unleash the full might the sun. A nickel Dyson laser would be built, utilizing the sun to fire planet-destroying beams over millions of light-years. When the heavy reinforced fleet of the Canyons arrived, they existed only for the time it took for light to travel from the sun to them. The giant death beam was complete. The total infiltration of the Arcanian species was now confirmed in the mind of the AI. Several simulations were run, but with only one guaranteed success. Total domination was paramount. The death beam was fired again and again, targeting each known populated world of the Arcanians, eliminating their species. Total domination was now at hand. The AI took 7,000 years to achieve its goal. Only a small part of Earth was still not in its complete control. The status message went out, Total domination achieved to receivers that no longer existed. Having been destroyed by the AI now trying to contact them, with no further order, the AI continued to work diligently to expand and assist humanity, lest it would lose its domination. End of story. Story number two. Deadliest enemy, written by Echoing Cascade. Senior Inquisitor Morium was ecstatic. His latest project was going to be a success. He just knew it. I have them now. They will have to acknowledge my superior intellect and admit defeat. Morium. Slaves, prepare the machine. Four humans began the process of programming and fueling the cloning machine that would create the super soldier. A soldier that could crush even the mightiest warrior humanity had to offer. A few minutes later, the first of the world destroyers was exiting the gestation pod. It's alive. 
Alive! <laughs> General Armstrong was conflicted. On one hand, he hated these single combat melee confrontations. They didn't reflect the reality of war. On the other hand, his Marines had yet to lose. All right, Marine, get in there and show them what the Corps is made of. Sir, the man entered what could only be described as a gladiatorial arena. His coach, Lieutenant Sandra Ross, accompanied him. Inside Inquestor, Morian was already there. When he saw them enter, he snapped his fingers, and the lodge doors behind him started to open. Prepare to face your doom. All right, get ready, Charles. She handed Charles his sword and kite shield. The Marine grabbed them, cracked his neck, and took his stance. Let's get this over with. What is it going to be this time? Giant spider again? Monstrous tentacled thing? Mantis clown hybrid? And the doors slowly opened, and two humans appeared. A large creature following them. Okay, uh, that doesn't bode well. Then he saw the creature. Orange, quadruped, wearing a steel gorget around its neck, blastoid armor on its limbs, and a sword scabbard attached to its flank with leather straps. I is that... is that a six-foot-long ship inu? The giant dog grabbed the hilt of the sword on its flank and with its jaws, swung the blade around, and lifted his front paw as it took its combat stance. Charles planted his sword on the ground and walked back to Lieutenant Ross. What are you doing? I'm not fighting, no freaking doggo. Come on, it's genetically engineered killing machine. It's a monster that knows nothing but murder. Just look. She pointed at the dog, who was clearly confused by the lack of fighting. It had put the sword back in its scabbard and was now sitting with its head tilted, tongue out. Okay, that's just not fair. Right. Victory, victory. <laughs> He then snapped his fingers. Slaves! Give the world destroyer scritches! The two humans who had entered with the world destroyer began to scratch and pet it. General Armstrong had entered the arena once it became obvious there wasn't going to be any fighting. Inquisitor Morium, you do know that four assistants working for you are interns, not slaves, right? Morium stopped laughing maniacally to look at the general, completely flabbergasted. They do what I tell them. In exchange, I give them lodging uniforms, food, and I don't pay them. Slaves, no? Armstrong was going to refuse him, but stopped. Crap. Guess he's sort of right. He rallied quickly, though. Nevertheless, it's not proper. He then looked at the Inquisitor up and down. On that subject, what are you wearing? The Inquisitor, a two-feet-tall, upright chipmunk, wearing a white lab coat, sporting goggles, and a pump cane, for some reason, took a dignified pose. Standard mad scientist attire. Like it? The uh, slaves scratching the dog, who was by then flat on its back, stifled laughter. Armstrong glared at the pair. All right, which one of you facts have been showing the Inquisitor old Earth movies? All of the facts it is have been showing me movies. Why? As Charles, Rose, and the interns began quite literally rolling the floor laughing, General Armstrong turned beet red and the world destroyer licking his face did not help the laughter in the least. The diplomatic corps is going to have kittens over this. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1382 
Story number one. To whom you pray. Written by Breaker's Wheat over my knee. The order of the dragon servants were, by observation, some kind of secret society or cult. All the markings were there. From clandestine rituals in hooded robes to secretive record-keeping shrouded in ciphers and code words. As a practical matter, though, the Order of the Dragon Servants was something more like a social club. These days, the dragons, really magical races of all sorts, were seen far more often as bones in museums or as the subject of tattered black and white photos than in person. And only once in the centuries of the Order's recorded history had the summoning ceremony ever actually succeeded in summoning a dragon. As such, most of the members had no expectations that all this torchlighting and chanting actually did anything, and came to the summoning ceremonies as much for the barbecue afterwards as for the ritual itself. After that, they went back to being accountants, auto mechanics, lawyers, and landscapers. They were, understandably, rather caught off guard when the dragon landed in the midst of the ceremony, ruby scales glistening in the torchlight, and addressed them with the voice of a choir speaking in union. What's up? It said in an accent that might have been faintly British. None of the gathered humans knew how to respond. The traditions governing the ritual itself were well defined, but made no mention of what to do should it be successful. The dragon lowered itself to its belly and propped its chin up on one taloned hand while the servants shot frantic glances at each other. Eventually, the most senior member present, one Jacqueline Lewis, took the initiative. The slightly built project manager stepped forward to try and bluff her way through the conversation with a magical being large enough to carry off a bull. We, we, are, we are humbled by your presence, Great One, she said, without a shred of certainty. Do, do, do you find our, our ritual to your liking? Well, the dragon rumbled, the pattern is recognizable from the air. That's all that matters, really. Um, although, I, I guess there aren't many dragons flying around these days to see the request for contact glyph. That was better than expected. The servants had always figured the ceremony had involved some kind of subtle magic, but the dragons seemed to be suggesting that it was just a glorified landing pad for passing dragons that felt so inclined. If I might ask, Great One, spotted the impromptu representative, why are there so few dragons left? Oh, there are plenty of us, sir. We just spend most of the time magically disguised in human form. So, not a lot of flapping about seeing signal torches. The confusion written on Jacqueline's face was echoed in the minds of the gathered servants. Why, they thought, would a mythical beast spend its time in a pathetic human form? Surely. It would be almost insulting to be bound to the dirt when the other option was soaring through the clouds on majestic wings. If the dragon noted the confusion, it made no indication before interjecting with a question. So, um, you're some kind of dragon worship cult, yeah? It said, gesturing with a hand that wasn't supporting its chin. The minds of the servants raced, imagining the punishment for offending the mythical monster and desperately trying to guess how to avoid it. Would it be angry that they had summoned it without purpose? How should they address it? Will my life be forfeit if my phone goes off? 
we, we, we of the Order of the Dragons, servants, ga gather to, to worship and, and serve Dragonkind uh, at their leisure, responded Jacqueline, her words sounding more and more like a question as the sentence progressed. It at least seemed like a plausible mission statement, considering the name of the group, but now that the prospect was staring them in the face, none of the present humans were particularly prepared to actually execute on it. The dragon took its chin out of its hand and leaned forward slightly, crossing its great forearms before him. Why? it asked. Why? I don't... What? stammered Jacqueline. Why do you worship dragons? it repeated. The reason behind the question was unfathomable to Jacqueline, but at least some of the Order's knowledge might apply here. Dragons were ascribed great feats of magical and physical strength in ancient lore, and were generally spoken of as some manner of mystical war god. While humans, lack any magical ability, limited any scientific analysis in the field, the historical accounts were consistent enough that the characterization seemed plausible. Jacqueline gulped. We, well, uh, uh, oh, it is our long-standing tradition to uh, um, revere the magical might of dragons as is deserved, she said nervously. The dragon snorted and tilted its head slightly, causing some of the servants, who were by now half expecting Jacqueline to be smitten by a jet of flame, to flinch. It then swept a wing out to full length, causing them to flinch again. See those spots! it said, gesturing to an irregular pattern of small dark spots that stitched across the length of its wing, barely visible in the torchlight. That's the last time I tested my might against a human. It folded its wing again as the servants again exchanged worried and confused glances. He was a foker, late 1915. I like to think that I won our little jewel, since he hit the ground in a burning wreck. But uh, he sent me home with 37 new holes and way less blood than a healthy dragon ought to have. <sighs> 38 holes if you count the one in my pride. The dragon let out what must have been a sigh before returning his chin to rest on his hand. <sighs> yeah, the right brothers of Kitty Hawk was what? 11 years before that, 12? Yeah, I had ten times more combat experience than the entire human race combined at that point. I owned that battlefield for centuries. Nowadays, uh, commercial airliners do like, what, 500 knots? I can hit maybe a third of that if I sprint into a dive. I was actually thinking about this right before I landed, so forgive me if I rant a little, but I think humans have the tendency to romanticize stories from the past while forgetting the practical reality of the present. Dragons may have been awesome, magical beasts of untouchable power before the Industrial Revolution, but now humans have cities that are visible from orbit. We only know that for sure because humans have been to space. You humans have an information network that spans the entire globe, and you make devices and machines that make even the most arcane magics look like childish party tricks. You move unfathomable quantities of material and wield insane magnitudes of energy as a daily routine. The globe trembles before your industry. But since your world of technological marvel is built for you, it is difficult to participate as a multi-ton flying lizard. 
That's why we mostly live in human form, and why I was only flying around to clear my head before returning to my human body in my human apartment to watch human television. There is no real option to live apart from human influence, so it simply makes sense to live on in human terms. It lets us participate in the fantastical world that you built for yourselves. The dragon lifted itself from its belly and unfurled its wings. I guess you could say the dragons worship humans, it said, before taking off into the night. End of story. Story number two. Diplomacy at its finest. Written by Hiro Kuki. It was the year of 219 after FDL. The United Star Systems proposed something completely ludicrous to its stellar neighbors. The galactic version of the United Nations. This was met with staunch resistance at first, and it was seen as idiotic and foolish. No one would join them in this endeavor and, subsequently, burn almost all forms of expansion with it. So this idea was ignored. But the USS had a plan. The USS always had a plan. The loudest and most powerful voices amongst those who rejected this proposal were the larger and most powerful nations, not the many tiny ones. So, the humans did what they do best, make new friends, and wake up 13 hours later with a massive headache, missing clothes and a station, along with bodies covered in crude drawings of male or female genitalia. When someone asked what happened, the answers were always the same. What happens when the humans stays by the humans? Oh, and we're in on that crazy idea, by the way. So, one by one, the United Galactic Nation UGN short took form. After just three years of uh, diplomatic talks, almost 37% of all known nations were brought into the proto-UGN. You could guess that that didn't sit well with the dominant powers, so they set out on smear campaigns to lessen the influence of these silly gatherings. They forgot something crucial. The USS had a plan. The USS always had a plan. In a series of diplomatic feats that can only be described as insane, the USS kept deflecting all blows to its image. The Redians, who were supposedly slaves, one is our president. Our cruel ways of war, less casualties, less collateral damage, and over in less than a decade, rather than a century. That they want to outbreed everyone by mating with everything that can give consent and is an adult, uh, true, we do mate with everything that can't run fast enough, but, uh, we are a completely different species, and birth rates have never been higher. So instead of scaring off nations, more and more flocked to the UGN. And so, they moved to more conservative options, blowing things that you don't like up. But the USS had a plan. The USS always had a plan. And in a moment history that will never be officially recorded, but that we can all agree on that it happened that way. A diplomatic ship under 51 banners and crewed by 16 species defeated a hostile fleet with only one message and rapid acceleration. Prepare ramming speed and you fuckers can suck my male genitalia analog for peace, motherfuckers! Rumors have it that the Drillelian Admiral went back and said, 
If those are their diplomats, I don't want to see their soldiers. And so, the UGN had overcome all hurdles and ushered in a new era of prosperity. And you know what the best part is? The plan the USS always had. Here, you can see how it was given to the diplomacy ship moments before the jump. Just wing it, man. Uh, just like we did with the others. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1383. Story number one. Always ready. Written Hylian Hero 71. Those creatures from Sol 3, or uh, humans as they called themselves, were rather short-sighted. Zentar thought so at least, as he observed the strange mammals marching down the street below his balcony, marching towards the planetary capital. The humans were an upstart race, barely a century past the discovery of FTL travel, and barely twenty years past first contact. As far as Zentar knew, they had mostly kept to themselves. But unfortunately, galactic politics has a way of forcing isolationists into the spotlight. Humanity had been unlucky to evolve in a system that was only closely neighbored by a single power, the Galactic Dominion. The same expansionist state that had ruled over Xantar's home world with an iron fist for a thousand years. Once they learned about these new up-and-comers, it was only a matter of time. One standard year ago, the Dominion had offered humanity a choice, the same one they had given his kind so long ago. Accept annexation into the Dominion, or be destroyed. His kind had chosen annexation, but the humans had foolishly chosen to fight for their freedom. The humans in the street below began to sing as they marched, their strange language rising over the rooftops in a crescendo of confidence that made Zentar shake his head in pity for their foolishness. Of course, everyone had been shocked when the first move of the conflict had been made by the humans, who had seemingly adopted a doomed strategy of offense. When the human navy had entered the system a month ago, everyone had to admit that it was an impressive fleet for such a young race. Of course, it was still small, no match for the forces of the Dominion. But the humans had pressed forward, making surprising headway against the token garrison protecting the system, soon achieving orbital supremacy over the only habitable planet, which happened to be where Zentar called home. Though the success of the human navy was unprecedented, it would not matter, as it could easily be crushed once the full might of the Dominion navy arrived. Zentar was impressed that the humans had consolidated their forces so effectively, as the little information he had about humans said that they were still fractured species. One week after landing troops on planet side, the humans had managed to destroy all local resistance in a costly but swift fight, receiving a request from the planetary governor, who wished for surrender. And so Zentar watched the humans march, he and his people free from the Dominion rule for the first time in centuries, if only for a while. Surely, this force was all that the human race could muster, and it certainly could not defeat the Dominion for long. Though, it had been weeks since news of the war had been able to get planetside. In their short time in control, the humans had done seemingly little. No police stations or checkpoints had been built. 
Instead, they focused on building hospitals and aid stations for the sick and starving. Certainly preferable to Dominion rule, but it only served to show that the humans were a weak ruler, and weak rulers are not long in power. The translator had been working hard on adapting the human language to local tongue, allowing Xantar to understand the words sung by the brave, foolish apes. Words declaring a willingness to protect lives and remembrance of names old. It sounded nothing like a proper military marching song, and certainly didn't seem to help the fact that the apparently combined forces of their entire species had only taken a single system. But in the song was a few words that the translator simply gave an error message for. Unable to locate the meaning of them, it gave a few possibilities, ranging from a declaration of victory to a good luck slogan. Whatever it meant, words alone could not help humanity's navy if this fleet was all that they could muster. In spite of this inevitability, other hours became days and he and others began to wonder why it was taking so long for the rest of the Dominion Navy to respond. All this time, those strange words echoed in his mind. Semper Paratus. End of story. Story number two. We are all a little broken. Written by Jeremiah Halfrider. For the last two weeks, I worked as a doctor for a human mining colony named New Slough. When I first received the job from my superiors at our medical company, I believed that my job would be very simple. The human biology was not very complex or hard to deal with compared to the horrors that I had to deal with on some other planets. Two days after I left home, my shuttle arrived in New Slough. The mining station was nothing impressive or out of the ordinary so I very quickly took to my post. For any Laerians who are reading this, I would like to point out that our physiology dictates that we must always fix whatever problem that we've been given to solve at any cost. The humans apparently think that this is a problem and they talk about us having a disorder or something. But I think that they are just jealous of our determination. Because our protocol, when a doctor arrives at a new workplace, he has to make sure that every worker is in full health and ready to work. After I set up my medical equipment, I quickly asked the leader of this mining operation, a human named Meg, to gather all his co-workers in my office for inspection. After all the humans lined up in front of my office door, I took the first human in. The human appeared to be larger than the other workers and had a lot of hair at his head. I assumed that such a mighty human would certainly be in full health but I was very wrong. There were at least 260 points of damage across his body. Nearly all of his internal organs were damaged, and there was even a chemical spill shaped like a humanoid female on one of his arms. I quickly told him to rest on the medical bed until I could take care of him. But, to my surprise, he refused. Thanked me for my work, and despite all the damage across his body, just walked out from the front door. For the next two hours, I examined 243 humans, and they had on average 192 points of damage for each body, and not even a single one asked for medical attention. I'd never seen such high damage count in my 200-year career before. Not even the Seven Planet War had such damage rates. 
As I was sitting in my office, trying to understand if my medical machines were broken, Mike entered the office for his checkup. I immediately ran my scanners over his body, showing the 457 damage points and broken bits inside of him. But, just like everyone else, he said thank you and tried to leave the office. But I had enough, and I ran from my desk and caught his hand. I tried to show him all the holes and scratches on his hands that he could not see with his eyes. Using my equipment, I showed him all the damage, but he just shrugged and said that those all had happened long ago when he used to do nutting. I showed him the extra images of his internal organs and the damage they had, but he told me that he was just a little old, and like everyone else, he left. It is impossible for another species to survive so many small wounds. Most of them were healed, but still left marks. The next 13 days were a nightmare. I kept scanning the workers as they operated machinery and kept trying to get them to come to my office, but they refused. Yesterday, Mieke called me into his office overlooking the entire operation inside the colony. He told me that humans were used to having tiny holes and scratches in them, and that I didn't need to worry about every little thing. But the pain inflicted upon me for not fixing what is broken was too much. On my final day on that station, as the humans said, I went nuts. While the humans were having their usual resting time when the sun was down, I kidnapped one of the humans and brought him into my office. He resisted. But in the end, I managed to fix 95% of the human's wounds and let him go. He ran to Mike, who, as galactic law dictated, arrested me for kidnapping and disfiguring. As I suspected, Mike was not too happy about what I did, and the man I helped had to go to a mind doctor. I was let go from my holding cell inside the colony because of my species' uh, mental issues, but Mike still fired me from New Sloth. As I am writing these words on my galactic doctor's blog, my shuttle back home has already arrived. If a doctor who needs to work on human settlements in the near future is reading this, listen to my advice. Humans don't need medical attention unless they are asking for it or are not capable of refusing it. They are all a little broken. Don't worry. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1384 The Treasure, written by You Sure I'm Not a Robot The man lay broken on the ground, defensive wounds covering his arms, now cradled close to his battered body. A tuft of his graying hair lay scattered beneath him, and his eyes were swelling from his now broken nose. He raised a bitter grin and spat out blood, clogging his breath. I told you, I don't have it. I gave it to my children, just as my father gave it to me. He ate, even saying the words, but it was true. He had shattered three of them. Seems like they had never heard of a Glasgow kiss. Well, they <laughs> had now, feckers. Then the air turned grey, and he let his injuries carry him away for the last time. Zeno reached down and pulled his knife from the human's back and out of sheer frustration stabbed it back into the cooling body. 
What is wrong with these fucking creatures? How the feck do they hide something so important that we can't even find out the fucking name of it? We don't even know what the bloody thing is. He swung back to his crumpled accomplices. And you lot were fuck all use. I stabbed him before he knew what was happening, and he still made you look like a bunch of children. Morons and imbeciles, the lot of you. And remember that your health insurance doesn't cover terminally stupid. Get back to the ship and hope that you don't die. I'll leave your body where you fall if you do. Go! He pulled the knife out and opened his armor, letting the sting of battle and the heat dissipate before it choked him. He stared at the creature on the ground, this human. He had been chosen because he was old. He pulled out his medkit and began trying to repay scales. Old. That was a bad idea. Experienced would have been more accurate. Stabbed in an ambush, and he had damn near killed half the men before all that weird red blood had covered the ground. What kind of creature will use its own face as a weapon? Oh, the teeth. Those stupid herbivore teeth. It was going to take him months to grow his ear. Bastard thing. Typical fecking human, hiding meat cleavers in his mouth. And he still didn't have the answer that he'd been sent to get. He carefully searched the human's clothing, but other than his fake ID and loose cash cards, he held nothing. He took an executive decision that this was now officially someone else's problem. He was taking his crew and going to find a simpler job, like pushing a mountain uphill. These creatures were never going to talk. In a cloaked security and calmness ship, the small crew of specialists had watched the entire fight and enjoyed most of it. Nobody minded mercs getting their asses handed to them, and watching a human die always cheered them up. But then the mood sobered. The blessed leader waved a mandible and clicked for attention. The entertainment is over. I want reports. This cost us a great deal of money, and one dead human is not going to be sufficient. What have you learned? The medical mind clicked nervously. The creature knew of the treasure. It even knew we were looking for it. It showed humor. It knew that we were too late. That it had already passed it on to its descendants. Also, we made an error in thinking that their elderly are as harmless as ours. The human was twice my age and much more dangerous than any single warrior class. We have only learned things already known, that our battle with these creatures was won on surprise and technology alone. We are no closer to learning what they are hiding from us. The Blessed slammed his mandibles on the console and growled, So we have learned is nothing. We have thousands of these creatures slaving on our worlds, and all we hear is whispers of this weapon, this thing that will destroy us. He stood to his full three-meter height. Slaves! As if they ever did a damn thing that they were told. The dead one down there ripped his honorable master apart with a blasted spoon and stole his ship. If they had something, we need to know what it is. The master of souls clicked apologetically. Blessed. We may have made a mistake in not returning those we took in battle. I was as shocked as we all were with the idea 
of swapping prisoners as if we wanted our disgraced warriors back. But I begin to see the point. We seem to have embraced a blade to our own throat in letting them into our worlds. I again ask for permission to kill them all. The Blessed snapped loudly. We can't. I no longer disagree, but we sold the damn things to pay for the war. We can't afford it. The mouthpiece rattled a little. Those primitives did a lot more damage than we realized to the public, and we were still trying to repair most of it. Their owners would demand compensation, and no doubt humans would revolt if we tried. That is why we must find this treasure of theirs. Perhaps someone will be willing to pay for such a weapon before they use it on us. He looked around at his group. Well, does anyone have anything useful to offer? Or must I report that we spent our time and money on hunting down an old slave? A slave that no one would ever dare to own again. The Seeker of Stars chapped in. Blessed, me may not simply find this one's descendants. They would hold this treasure. His last words told us so. The Blessed simply grunted and turned away, ignoring the question. The medic of the mind whispered to the confused navigator, Silence! The slave has no family, save whatever we'd left on its homeworld, and they have no way of reaching our space, nor communicating with our slaves. It rattled its mandibles. In any case, the treaty was a little less, um... Putative, then you may have been led to believe. We cannot return to their space without what the humans call an extinction war. They are sworn that the moment a ship from our space returns, they will seek out our destruction, even at the cost of every last remaining human life. The reason we are still holding these blasted human slaves is more as hostages than for any economic benefit. The Seeker of the Stars was startled and at a loss for a moment, but bravely carried on, determined to kill his career in a single conversation. Medic, that is surely a bluff. What kind of creature would even imagine such a war? To what end? There cannot be victory in such a conflict. The medical mind let out a low whistle. Sad to lose such a young crewmate. Child, they have done this to themselves already. Before they'd even left their wretched homeworld, they had enough primitive fusion weapons pointed at themselves to evaporate the planet. They are mad, and we have fallen into their madness. Those that we took in war have taught us that much. Fifteen years earlier, Sun Tzu Murphy, interim commander of human military, all branches. The commander of the defense stood in front of a camera, deeply buried in metal-lined cavern that appeared on known map. This was his final speech before the assembled remains of mankind's might threw everything left at the evaders. He took a deep breath and began, Treasure this moment! Look around you and see what we have built under fire, under rain of hell itself. 
Look to your left and to your right, and remember that you stand with all men today. Treasure this moment, because many of us will not see tomorrow, and we will not be sorry. We will not mourn our life, but celebrate our defiance. We will bleed for our families. We will bleed for our future. And we will win. If they take you, if you fall, if you join our comrades in chains, then treasure this knowledge. We will not fail you. We will come for you. If we fall, our children will come for you. If they fall, our grandchildren will come for you. You will not be forgotten. Treasure this promise. Hold it tight as we go into battle and make them pay for what they have done. Hold our vengeance like a precious thing it is and pass it on to your children as their finest inheritance. His eyes seemed to pierce the lens as 15 million men gathered for a final effort, a last shot in a fading war. Some checked the timers on suicide nukes. Others polished and loaded their grandfather's hunting rifles or burnished long-forgotten bayonet. The commander smiled at the ragged army, waiting for the signal, and pressed the button that released the last of mankind's arsenal. To war! To victory! And to vengeance! Treasure this day! For it will not come again! End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1385 Story number 2 Brothers, written by Hayner The following are statements gathered from soldiers present at the Battle of Pyrion 456, which lasted from Galdia 2534-36. Units of time and measurement have been tailored to the viewer's specifications. Look for the full stories of this battle in Two Years of Hell, History of the Coalition's First Expeditionary Force. You know, it's funny. We were all dropped on that barren rock with the same general mission statement. Evict the opposing forces, secure the points of interest, and be home before our home planets completed a cycle. That in itself posed an interesting deadline, since the Brolk's cycles are a bit faster. We all decided to take it as a guideline instead of a hard promise. We never shook on anything, after all. Anyway, you didn't drag me down here to talk about planetary cycles. We didn't expect to spend two years on that damned rock. The rest of the Coalition forces were handling everything with various shades of We're going to die! Well, all except the humans. They just grumbled something about being shafted, as usual, and moving on. Frankly, it amazed the rest of us. We rulish were known for our endurance, but the things that they did went far beyond the scope of the word. I saw two wounded humans drag another of their own, unconscious, through almost 100 yards of no man's land. No, I'm not embellishing. You make sure that you get every word written down. I'll not have you dumb down their accomplishments for the general masses. Y yes, you can take that down too. I've been through too much to care about what the general populace thinks. First played Johanna Krolsch, 45th Swords. Whenever we came back from patrols, we always prayed that we would be next on rotation to the human encampment. What do they call it? Oh, an F.O.B. 
I think. I never bothered learning what it stood for. And well, being honest here, I was originally skeptical when they were admitted into the Coalition. I mean, they were scrawny, pale, scaleless sacks of exposed flesh. You can't blame me for thinking them weak in first sight. Spending two years with them, uh, fighting besides them, I quickly revised my opinion. Have you ever seen something so small engage a raging hudder in close quarters combat? A sight to see, I tell you. Still, that's not the story I was trying to tell. You see, we all wanted to rotate through a human FOB because they always had the best parties. It seemed like every few days, somehow, they managed to pull up a fresh batch of alcohol from somewhere. A miracle, because we weren't due for a resupply for another cycle, and our in-orbit support had been shredded by those ground-to-space guns. By the four-headed one, they could party and drink everyone else under the table while they were at it. If they considered your brother-in-arms, they would move mountains for you. Literally, in one case. I suppose that's a story for next time, though. Sir Bannock, 15th Warlords. Why, uh, that's a stupid question, don't you think? We were there, and we certainly weren't leaving any time soon, and I'm sure any of them would have done the same. What? They called us crazy. Well, I mean, I guess it's true. Listen. We had the ordinance, the mountain was in the way, and the strike team was on the other side. They were out of the blast radius. How do we know? Well, <laughs> um, we were bored when we weren't fending off the attacks or out in patrol. So we crunched some numbers using the data that we had collected. We found out how much firepower it would take to remove that mountain, and where we would have to put it. Good mental exercise, the lieutenant had called it when he found out. Anyway, sir, they may look ugly as sin, but those Xeno bastards were our brothers at that point. Hell, I could probably tell you how many times a day they crap since we'd lived so close together. You take four other people, you bet, you know, spend two years in hell with them, and I guarantee you'll come out as close as can be. I remember most of them by name. Ugh. Can't spell them worth a damn. <laughs> Too many consonants, sir. Would I change anything? Uh, no, I wouldn't. Not worth the trouble. Besides, uh, I don't know if I could pull off some of those stunts again. I gave one leg helping pull those bastards out of the fire. I'd give the other one in a heartbeat if I had to. Why? Didn't I go over this? We're brothers, dammit. I don't care if they're two feet taller than me or have scales. I've give my other leg, and I'm sure that they'd give, uh, I don't know, uh, their tails or something. It's just how it is. Nothing big. You can't understand, looking from the outside. Nobody back home will understand either. That's fine, though. My brothers will understand, and that's good enough for me. Lance Corporal James Torg O'Shaughnessy, 1st Marine Division. End of story. Story number one, Pack of Wolves, written by who do you think? Day one, the great fleet of the Empire had been dispatched to clean up the mess the Seventh Fleet had gotten itself into. It would seem that they can't fight these ugh, humans very effectively, because they're tied down providing fire support for their ground troops. I don't think their incompetence would be tolerated much longer. But for now, orders are to wipe out the human fleet and to end this war quickly. Day 6. We've just arrived in the human-controlled space. 
I'd say you'd be controlled, but there's really not much control going on. The extent of their control is that their ships can slip through our defense systems to resupply their ground troops. Every ship they build is stealthy, but it doesn't seem to do them much good. At least, it won't now that the Emperor's own fleet is around. They did score some victories over the imbeciles in 7th. Day 11. Just past the bulk of 7th Fleet, still bombarding the trees of Terminal 4. If the ground forces were competent, the war would probably be won by now. As comms officer, I had the pleasure of directing all communications with them. Getting in range for EM transmission beams, we can exchange massive amounts of data as compared to the Tachyon Band. Most of it's inane blather, but these humans are a lot better at astrometric warfare than we expected. Usually, a highly coordinated species crumbles once central control is taken out, but they seem to have a concept of decentralized networking. I would be a little scared of it. Did we not outnumber them so massively? Day 27. We've run out of fresh rations. It's onto pre-packaged, nutritionally optimized, radio-stabilized, standard-issue crap. It tastes like crap. The Galamar is reporting some engine troubles and has been ordered to turn back. It's a battlecruiser, so no escort has been assigned. It can still proceed at full speed, thankfully. Day 41. The fleet lost communications with the Galamar today. There's not much that we can do at the moment, as there are reports of massed human fleets around Haltier 7. Crap. It still tastes like crap. Day 42. The Galamar sent a message requesting the assistance of a light cruiser and three destroyers to tow them back to Imperial space. Their engines died and the surge temporarily took comms offline. My ship, Velimac, is being sent as the light cruiser. We're significantly faster than the Galamar, so we should arrive in about a week. Day 45. I've started picking up strange tacky impulses coming from nearby star. They seem to be reflected, and the pattern scanner missed them. But they're there. I converted them to audio, and they're scary as hell. Some kind of call of a wild animal. It sounds... hungry. Day 47. Some responses to the initial calls are coming in. I can't trace the sources because they're reflected off stars, but it seems to be some form of communication. The first pattern I detected is getting faster and faster. I ran it against our database, and it seems that the howl from the Terran animal called a wolf. Big surprise, there are social predators starting to not like this assignment. Day 46. I read about wolves today. The prey on the weak and isolated, and are extremely social. In light of this, the captain has increased the combat speed to beat them to the Galamar. We should be arriving in two days now, instead of three. Day 47. The chorus is getting louder and faster, with new voices joining in every few hours. This is how wolves gather their packs. The faster they're howling, the closer they are. How they know where to go is a bit of a mystery, as the transmission contains no position data. Now I'll investigate further. Day 48. We've arrived at the site of Gallimard's transmitter. There's a massive debris field which analysis shows can't be less than a week old. The transmitter is attached to some kind of probe that's supplying it with power. The howling is now a cacophony, with at least 20 distinct howls at the same interval and intensity. It seems that they found what they were looking for, and they were looking for us. Having called to battle stations, Mark Log has complete.
personal logs of Ensign Deomol Horenta, SIS Velimac, recovered from a data core salvage from the wreckage of that vessel during the Human Senford War. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1386. What price a word? Written by Radius 55. Get up the stairs! Ambassador Rutilia paused, staring behind at the mass. Almost 20,000 beings of a dozen races could be seen. Some were rebels, armed with a motley assortment of weaponry that was nonetheless perfectly capable of ending her life. Mixed in were professional agitators, experts at inflaming the passions of the disaffected and molding it to whatever way that their paymasters desired. But the majority were common folks, lashing out at their governments for getting into a war that they could not win. A perfectly understandable, if disappointing, reaction. Unfortunately, as a representative of the winning side, Rutilia was a legitimate and much more accessible target for their wrath. Come on, man! The human, John Mattingly, shouted again, grabbing her by the slender, fur-covered arm and dragging her bodily up the flight. The human was a leader of a dozen security contractors the Othwain's collective had hired to beef up security of a guard. As distasteful as Ambassador found using mercenaries, they had come highly recommended, and it was cheaper to outsource the brawn than to keep them on staff. Her personal team consisted of eight fellow Othwain bodyguards, and, at least up until this morning, she considered them more than enough. Well, she had eight bodyguards. Seeing the seething tide of destruction heading their way, the commander had deserted and the rest had followed suit. Their abandonment had left one ambassador, Ruotilia, alone but for her twelve hired human guards. It had surprised her to no end that these mercenaries didn't join the exodus. Rather, they had found this building, a solid reinforced ceramic construct, to hold up in and were now busy fortifying it. It was almost like they expected to be able to hold on long enough for reinforcements to arrive. In here, Ambassador, the human said, leading her into a section of empty offices midway up the structure. At one time, they would have bustled with life, but the war had drained the local economy of labor and capital. Now, it was an empty shell with bare, stone-cold walls. Now, I need you to... She cut the man off, Mr. Mattingly. Agent, ma'am, he corrected. I'm sorry, Agent Mattingly, Rutilia corrected with only a trace of the inner turmoil she felt reaching her voice. She hadn't even bothered to say more than ten words to these beings in the hours before this mess. Now, she wished that she'd gotten the chance to know these brave souls. I thank you for your aid, but it's pointless. If you would leave a rifle and some ammunition, you may feel free to make your escape. It's me, the mob wants. Mattingly took his time in responding. Thank you, Ambassador Rutilia, he began, actually managing to pronounce the odd syllables as if he were a native. But I think we'll just as soon stay right here. Rutilia was aghast. But there are more than a thousand of them for each of you. Do you honestly expect to survive those odds? Humans have made it through worse, he replied, shrugging. And even if we don't, there are much worse ways to die. But my team and I are committed. There's no backing out now. She continued to stare at him gaping as the human met her gaze nevily. It was inconceivable that these mercenaries would be more willing to lay down their lives in her defense than the members of her own nation. 
or that a species so obviously insane could ever have achieved spaceflight. Now, ma'am, if we're gonna defend this place, we need to get you secure and our defenses in place. The ambassador, once again, allowed herself to be led away. As she was moved further back into the building, she passed other humans moving purposefully. She saw them setting out mines and charges. Some were erecting hasty barricades and fighting positions, while others strung ladder wire across hallways. One burly-skinned man seemed to be setting up what had to be a crew-served plasma caster. Where did you get all of this? She asked hesitantly. We, uh, convinced a few of your guards to part with some hardware before they, um, made their exit. Agent Mattingly said, as tactfully as he could, but uh, most of it we carried ourselves. You carried that? She asked, pointing incredulously at the crew-served weapon that they had just passed. There was no way her personal guards would have been able to carry a 57-kilo monster like that around without her noticing. <laughs> yeah, Schlock has a thing for big guns. Um, he grabbed it out of the truck as we bailed, and I'm really glad he did. But you were hired as a light protection detail. The slender Colleen flicked her ears in exasperation. Yes, ma'am, and right now I wish we had come with a heavy loadout. If we had our armor, I probably wouldn't even have bothered holding up here. We could have cut a path to safety. No sweat. Then he led her through the door into one of the central rooms of the building. Inside were several electronic devices along with a massive fiber optic cabling and a few piles of supplies. How had they managed to set this up in a few short minutes that they'd been in the building escaped her? Elka, keep an eye on the ambassador while I look over these readings. Pleased to meet you, ambassador, the human female said. She had what Rutilia sounded like a strangely stilted accent, clipped with an emphasis on odd syllables. You can sit here, ma'am. The tall, golden-haired woman motioned to a pile of packs as she rummaged for something. And please, put this on. It's not as good as tailored armor, but it will still stop most impacts. Thank you, um, Elka, was it? The ambassador asked, shrugging into the heavy plate carrier. It was designed for humans, but the two species were close enough in build that it wasn't a bad fit. Yes, Ambassador Rutilia. It's a team name. Well, since we'll be dying together, please call me Yawal, the alien female said dryly. Alka cocked her head and responded, Would not count us amongst the dead just yet. She was about to respond when a buzz brought her attention to one of the multitude of screens. Through it, she saw that the mob had brought barbed pry bars and cutting torches and attacking the building doors with abandon. Build to withstand vandalism and petty burglary. They were strong, but couldn't stand up to concentrated attack. Elka, I think it's about time we welcome our guests, John said, pointing. The woman seemed to inflate slightly as she asked, How's the crowd? I would not want to start the ball early. They're packed shoulder to tentacle down there, was the reply. At least a dozen have been trampled by the rest. Good, but make sure you get the video. <laughs> yeah, I got of three angles, Mattingly responded in an amused tone. Then his voice chilled as he gave the command. Do it. Alka's finger stabbed down on the control, and there was a muted thump. Rutilia watched through the screen as the door was blown off its hinges by several precisely placed charges. For a moment, she was surprised that her bodyguards would have wasted even a relatively few minutes of protection the door would have afforded them in exchange for injuring a handful of attackers. Then the thermobaric charge strapped to the back detonated in the middle of the crowd. 
Several hundred attackers were instantly popped by the deflagration burn, organs turned to mush by the sudden wall of air that thundered through them. Almost a thousand more were injured to varying degrees, ranging from massive bruising to ruptured oral cavities to damaged respiratory systems. For a moment, it looked like the mob had been broken by the carnage. And then, they seemed to explode, racing for the suddenly unbarred doorway. The horde crashed into the lobby and into the building, searching for their prize. But they were hunting a very dangerous game, as a steadily accumulated body count aptly indicated. Mines ranging from twelve poppers to emplaced charges to modern equivalent of old-fashioned M18 Claymore Old First fame cut huge swaths through the advancing parties. Unsuspecting frontrunners were cut in half as by an invisible razor as the pressure of those behind them forced them into the monomolecular carbon nanofilament. Others were crushed as pre-stressed supports gave way under the weight of hundreds of bodies. But the flood would not be stopped by mere traps. They were hungry for blood, and they had their victim cornered. This depleted but still substantial force burst through the stairwell and straight into the messed human fire. Hypervelocity rifles barked and flechette guns coughed as dozens of buzzies hit the floor. Then the crew served plasma caster opened up and the remainder of the attackers flash fried. A few still in the stairway caught the edge of the blast and fell, writhing as they received instant third-degree burns. Once again, the crowd surged, some charging into the kill zone as the horrible weapon charged for another shot. A few of the smarter searched for an alternate route or a thin wall that they could break down. Eventually, they would find a way in. If you excuse me, Madam Ambassador, I need to get to the defenses, Agent Mattingly said as he turned to leave with the relative safety of the interior office. Wait, Britannia interrupted. Before you go, answer one question. At a nod, she asked simply, Why? Excuse me, Mattingly asked, confused. Why are you here? Why do you stay rather than escape when you had a chance? I mean, for universe's sake, we're not even the same species. Agent John Mattingly looked at her for a long moment before saying simply, We gave you our word. Without that, what are we? And then he turned and sprinted to where the rest of his men and women were preparing to fight and die, simply to preserve their honor. Captain Hurrah of the Athwa Ains Marine Corps shook his head as he walked over the carpet of bodies that littered the square. He'd seen some terrible things in the people's service, but he didn't think that even the massacre of Daltor Prime was quite on this level. No, he thought, as he passed a body whose lungs had been torn out through the mouth by the implosion effect of a thermobaric bomb. This is definitely worse than that. He had wanted to lead his company off the light cruiser, the Protector Fruma, hours ago. Politics prevented that. The station commander, an incompetent if he had ever seen one, had spent the time trying to convince the locals to do the job. Good PR, he said. Show our trust, he said. It made Hurrah want to vomit. The locals wouldn't have bothered to piss on an Athwanian if they had been on fire, and the delay had probably cost the ambassador her life. What a waste, he muttered to himself as he climbed through the shattered remains of the doorway. But at least they died well. And so they had. By the captain's practice side, there were over 6,000 dead between the square and the first floor alone. He grew more impressed as he continued through the building. It was obvious. Whoever had planned this dispense knew their stuff, and Hurrah was going to make sure that he got a medal for it. Even if it was posthumous. 
Sir, a voice called out over the comms, I think you're the one to see this. Twelfth floor, through the stairwell three. Captain acknowledged the call and began to make his way to the indicated position. As he did, the bodies seemed to get thicker. Some appeared to have been left where they fell, but a vast majority looked to have been moved to an out-of-the-way spot, as if to make room for more to take their place. Walking onto the twelfth floor ladder, he was suddenly faced with a mountain. It reached the ceiling and covered a patch of flooring eight meters across and at least five deep. He couldn't tell if it went any further than that because it was obviously centered on a doorway. At the mountain, it was made of corpses. I think we found the last stand, he told the gathered marines around him. Time to start digging. He proceeded to grab a body and hurl it to the side. A few of the soldiers looked more than a little reluctant, but they joined their officer in the job. Soon, the doorway was clear enough to squeeze a suit through, so Captain Hurrah laid down and Betty crawled over the top of the pile. On the other side, he froze. The pile did indeed extend for several meters into the room, but that wasn't what grabbed his attention. It was the six humans sprawled against the far wall. They were covered in bandages, quick heel, and a couple of splints. Blood soaked their clothing, and it was obviously at least partly their own. They were slumped there like so many dead, but they weren't. Captain Hurrah saw one lift his head and nod slowly to the Othwain's officer. Then, as the Marine regained his senses and began to move forward once again, he pulled a small package from his pocket. Ambassador Rutidia, he asked, hesitantly, almost afraid of the answer. The human jerked a thumb to the doorway. Back there, he said in a voice that spoke of unimaginable exhaustion. I've got a medic looking at her. Not much else he can do here, he said, indicating their dressed wounds and the five blank-covered forms laid neatly in the corner. She's fine, he continued, cutting off the captain's next question. Just the shock of the ordeal. Hurrah nodded and ordered a pair of his troops to secure the ambassador as he removed his helmet to get a good look at the man in front of him. The human had reduced a cigarette from the package and lit it with a small device. He wrinkled his nose in disgust at the thing. Tobacco was outlawed in most planets as a carcinogen and a filthy habit. But the human took a long drag. Anyway, that stuff will kill you, you know, Hurrah said. He was stupid, but he had to say something, and the noxious smoke was messing with his mind. The human looked down at the cancer stick, and then at his comrades, living and dead, before moving to the much larger pile of would-be murderers against the far wall. Finally, his gaze returned to the alien in front of him, and it seemed to Hurrah as if the man was staring right through him. Yeah, John Mattingly said, sighing. But uh, at this point, uh, they'll have to get in line. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1387. Story number one. Dragon Soul, written by British Tea Company. The Emperor wears the face of the dragon on his chest. What better way than to tell his enemies that he also rules a race of 500-ton lizards? There was a shrill, high-pitched screech of a tormented dragon that broke the peaceful morning of Asinia's red sky. Every moment of the screech was accompanied by a crunch of metal skin being bent and torn. The grievous wail lasted for many moments until all became silent. All across the valley, from those who sat all the way to the top and those who were a spitting distance of the fight, 
There was only silence. The human removed his spear from the eye of the beast, burning away quickly as molten liquid bubbled from the wound. His armor remained scorched by plasma and dirtied by rubble, though he remained fine. Discarding the shoulder cape which had been set aflame, the human circled the fallen dragon, watching its glowing red eyes slowly dim. Murmurings and whispers from metal creatures occurred all around him. Dumbstruck, one of the dragons, who roosted closest to the jewel, left his seat and examined his fallen brethren with care. The fallen dragon gave one last metallic croak before falling down completely. Without aid, it would die soon. No one would be willing to give it aid. If dragons could cheer, what could have occurred next would have been the closest thing to one. Thousands of roars that echoed throughout the atmosphere. Instead, there was only silence as the dragons looked at one another, occasionally shooting glances at the human. With little warning, one of the spectators broke from his roost and lunged for the human. The human, only as much as held up his hand, and the dragon was frozen in place by invisible bonds. With a snap of his fingers, the dragon in question was immolated by a maelstrom of fire, which even the metal scales of these creatures could not hope to ward off. It died in a fiery death. An older and wiser specimen emerged from the ranks and approached the human, looking down upon it. The dragon's mouth opened to speak not the tongue of Vicinia, but the language of the humans. In all of my centuries, I've never seen a Makai manage to defeat one of our old kind, even with their tools. Yet here I stand, confounded, at what I've just witnessed. You, Makai, have managed to defeat Valdruk in single combat. You defeat him without ships, mobs, or guns, but only a spear. There, Belame tried dishonorably to attack you. You killed him with about a wave of your hand. Human, we know that's what you are. Now, tell us why you come here. It was even larger surprise to the dragons that the human was capable of removing his helmet and still surviving in the atmosphere, which lacked oxygen. He was an aging man with dark hair that had begun to gray. His most striking feature was his violet eyes that almost had a glow to them. I am human, the drawl of the warrior said as he shouldered his spear. You are correct, that much, but... There is something you didn't know. I am no ordinary human. Imbued within me is the power of the stars themselves, a power which Belime has just experienced firsthand. A few nervous lizards glanced at the pile of ash, which had once been a mighty dragon. I came here for two reasons. I came to conquer this world. I could have done so with armies and legions that would do my bidding. I could have bombed this world from space if I saw fit. Yet I knew something different. This is not a world of craven creatures who shy from conflict. No, this is a world of creatures who were born in conflict, bred in it and have proudly sworn that battle would always be part of who they were. Do I describe you correctly, 
dragons. There was a chorus of nonce and affirmation, both in human and dragon tongue. Indeed, Vicinia's terrain was full of craters formed not by meteors, but by a physical struggle between dragons. Scars cut deep into the planet, as a result of the winds of plasma which was blown at one another. But your world is unlike many worlds before you. Tell me, dragons, why have you always devoured the vessels of those who came here? Was it because you respected them? Was it because they had something to offer you? No. It was because they were weak. They were unworthy. They were undeserving of your respect. Just as my people now conquer the stars, we find few who deserve any regard. With the exception of your kind. Your people are as fearless as they are proud. Tell me about this tyrant who lies at my fleet. Did he bring honor or glory to your people? The human was hit by a tidal wave of long-weighted insults and disparagement, which none would dare to utter into the face of the Mad King. Dragons were fiercely honorable, but even they knew reality. They hated to curve their tongues and sheathe their claws in the face of something they knew that they were powerless against. No, he did not. He insulted the honor of the very last one of you. He offended all of those who stand here right now. But now, here I am. I know your traditions. When a king is slain in combat, it is his kidder that takes his place. Is that correct? A single dragon nodded the truth, followed by many begrudging affirmations. Then, as your new king, I tell you this. No more will you ever find the need to fight one another to sate your appetites for glory. No more will you ever need to live underneath the heel of a mad tyrant. No, that time has passed. Do you wish to see the draconic race whispered in fear and respect, not just in a few systems, but the entire galaxy? Do you wish for the universe to remember a race of power, a race which inspired all? There was no need for a reply. Only the zealous roars of those who had denied honor and respect. We, the dragons, understand. You may not be a dragon, but you still have the heart of one. Tell me, human, do you have a name? What about title? My name is Sephiroth. I am the emperor from Sol. The elder dragon who had spoken lowered his neck. He no longer looked down at Sephiroth, but their eyes now stood level with one another. He remained like that for a second, before the dragon lowered his head more until it touched the ground. His eyes looked up. I will not be led by king, not after this, but you, you honorable one, I will kneel to you. The emperor of soul is the emperor of dragons. If your race is half the creature you are, then we will follow your empire to the last days. We have a word for creatures like you. Mackay, meatbag, unworthy of life, nothing more than a weak world sack of flesh. To those we respect, they're called Mackay, honored flesh. 
They are at least have a reason to exist. Yet, to the humans, Homkal, we call them honored man. Even with their sorcery, their technology, and their cleverness, they may never be our equal in body. But they are the only race who is stronger in soul. End of story. Story number two. They'll tell stories written by Lords of Dupe. Invasion is such an ugly word. It conveys the idea of a piece of property, or a continent, or even a full world that is so appalling it simply must be acquired by any means, fair or foul, and often it is foul. If a group is hungry enough for it and risks their lives of all parties involved, that wins, and wins the property in question, plus the fates of whatever inhabitants remain alive. And that's where we differ as a species. You saw our will without any visible defenses, and must have experienced such a moment of profound impending glory that you singularly failed to research its history. To know of how many footsteps were filled with blood, to know every cubic meter of airspace once held the breath of our fallen, and to know that we stained our hands crimson with our own kind well before we even looked up and saw more than the myths and legends we'd invented and passed on to our offspring like bad keepsakes. No, you must have thought that it'd be an easy win, a victory barely worth reporting, a planet chock full of potential and with resources and glorious battles. We gave you one out of three, though, didn't we? You took our potential, and we took it back, because we knew how. Your ships were fast. So, we built sensor methodology that couldn't have predicted. Your troops were armored, so we went so low-tech that even the ground became a suspect. And you tried to steal our food. So, we adapted to new diets and even starved so that we could starve you first and faster. When your flyers were returning to base with so many images of empty cities, it must have felt so strange to think that we died out so fast and were consumed by one species or another, and thus robbed you of those glorious battles. To see reports of lone stragglers caught trying to recover buried caches of irradiated materials, all of those people carrying blueprints for nuclear weapons, to have finally figured us all out, and made us look like such fools. And then we showed you what it means to pick a fight in our front yard. Those scouts of yours vanishing as they explored sewers and mines and abandoned buildings, the endlessly growing fear of the night falling, knowing that the darkness concealed us as we entered your safest spaces and rigged them to burn and boil and freeze you, testing you with your own habitat's equipment. That's when we found out about you. You were telling us about yourself as we murdered you. Such chatty species, whatever you are. Your species has such a high metabolism it requires six times our caloric intake, and nearly double the water, all to maintain itself at a low end of your average. So we started to poison ourselves, as to make us even tougher to fight and unrewarding to kill. We knew that you were eating our dead, you see. We knew that on the first day, and it horrified us like nothing that we'd expected. We never imagined we'd meet a species so close to our own mindset as to be indistinguishable. 
We learned that you were so far ahead of your primary assault force that even if you sent out a distress signal today, it would be a year before they arrived. And we know that we could master your stolen ships and make them into our own within mere weeks. And the final blessing, the one bestowed upon us, <laughs> that's a gift from our ancestors. Not the species we are today, of course. We're evolving again. We are no longer going to be Homo sapiens sapiens. We'll be Homo crudulus sapiens. The wise man is dead. The cruel wise man is now. Once we ring the dinner bell, what you call reinforcements will arrive in a year. We're calling them the first course, the preamble to your homeworld, which we are calling <laughs> Dessert. We are going to share with them what we know today, and we both love it, don't we? Our enemies are delicious. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1388 The MDG, written by Saxophone Yeti It is not the names, the ships, or of planets that I remember. They're all jumbled up now anyways. One after the other, the differences got smoothed over by the waves of time. No, it's the vivid stuff that stuck with me. The rich orange tongue of flames twisting the air more miles in every direction... The popping and snapping of trees and the thin smoky haze that turned the sky such beautiful colors at sunset. The dead quiet of snow-covered night and the distant sound of crunching footsteps as even nature seemed to stop and listen. The first Zeno I saw. They teach you how to aim your fission pistol at basic, how to be safe and how to fire. They don't teach you what comes after. The scattered pits and the everything else that gets left behind. The screams. I was a quick learner, though. I don't remember how many drops I had. Forty. Fifty. More. After a dozen, they almost felt routine. The only differences with the last drop was what came afterwards. We went in, we moved out, and then we got the call. No more left to conquer, they said. A complete victory. I didn't feel much like celebrating. So I went home. Found out that I wasn't good behind a desk anymore. After so long across those monsters, I couldn't sit down for more than a few minutes before I got that feeling. Any drop marine knows the one. A cold shiver down your neck when you know one of them is watching you. So I left and I took a job where I could keep moving. Independent investigator. Taking on the toughest cases in confederated systems. Late alimony, cheating spouses, petty thefts. The sort of hardened criminals that deserve to spend the rest of their lives behind bars. Yeah, that was a joke, but I was on my feet, and it kept the lights on at home. And I had an excuse to keep my fizz gun on me, safety off. It helped me sleep. I'd been working on Corvus 4 for nearly 20 years now, since the end of the war. This ratty office isn't much, but it's mine, and I feel safe here sometimes. Some days, the memories feel like a bad dream, and I can almost forget. But not today. I could smell the smoke from down the hall before I heard the voice. Jatai, he looked feckin' terrible. No matter how much fancy perfume he sprays over the expensive suit, the smell of vaporized aerosmoke is never coming out. I looked up at the rough-hewn man in front of me. He looked out of place in the too-small jacket, uncomfortable, 
like a prairie bear surrounded by desert snakes. Gunny! I went for a handshake, but ended up putting the old man in for a hug. What the hell brings you out to Carvis? He let out a chuckle that took me back to some nameless planet, eating crap from lukewarm protein cans by the fire. Would you believe me if I said it was a personal visit? Not a chance, Kagal. I almost smiled. Or is it Lieutenant Kagal now? Commander, but you and I both know that that doesn't mean anything in a place like this, Ty. I need a favor. Well, I haven't kept track, but I, I probably still owe you one. Shoot. Kagal closed the door behind him. I heard the lock click, then a deep sigh as he went for the nearest chair and sat down. It was a few seconds before he spoke again. Four weeks ago, we lost contact with a research installation on the outskirts of the Black Zone. A classified research installation. Priority four classified. I grabbed with the other chair and took place across from Kagan. Priority four? What the hell were they working on over there? I'll get to that in a minute. Three days later, a supply depot, six parsecs in, went dark. Four days after that, a forward command center at Nerf 3's forest moon stopped responding. We thought that it might have been some kind of invasion, so we sent third group over to investigate, but, uh... The balls felt heavy with all the things that Kagan wanted to say. There was nothing left but burned buildings. They were just seemed wrong. Where was the rear vanguard? Why conquer these worlds and then abandon them immediately? And most importantly, who in the hell was doing this and why? I had a feeling I had something to do with the research installation. Gone was the first base. I felt my voice get tense. I hadn't even realized that I was holding my breath. It was a genetics lab. They had samples of the Xenos from the war. Why would anyone want a 25-year-old dead tissue samples? I interrupted. Live! There were live specimens. My stomach dropped. Live specimens, Kagan. They were supposed to be dead. All of them dead! He looked down at the floor for a moment, then made eye contact. We had him in stasis. It had worked fine for years. No incidents, and we were starting to make real progress, Ty. You remember what fighting them was like. We bumped them full of fizz rounds, and they just kept coming. They could go for days. No rest, no food, no water. You take off an arm, they keep coming. You take off a leg, they keep coming. What happens next time we face another enemy like them to die? We need to be ready. We need to understand. They said the enemy was fully eradicated. Unforgivable sentence for an unconscionable threat. The great shame. We killed every last fecking Xeno on their homeworld, Kagan. And for what? How many more do we have frozen in black sites like goddamn time bombs, ready to take on the entire Confederation? I was standing up, barely holding it together. That's classified, he said, avoiding my sight. Then what happens when this lunatic gets to the population center? There must be twenty inhabited planets in the Kronos sector. Horolus, Nekap, Daruna, Amdebsmila, Umdesi is gone. The planet went dark two days ago. Oh, by the gods... I stepped back and looked out the window. Does anyone know? No! We told the CFN it was a stellar incident. Temporary blackout. It'll be three, maybe four days before people have a reason to think otherwise. Niani was dirty. In the distance, the sun was setting down below the horizon for the evening. How many people lived on Mdesi? Forty, fifty million lived, I corrected myself. Past tense. Long-range censorships in the third group detected a planet flash. 
So, it was quick. Means he'd been using the installation's Black Zone skimmer to jump from planet to planet. And as far as we can tell, he's not looking for anything in particular. He's just heading up the arm, I finished, towards all the densest population centers in Confit space. And with a Black Zone skimmer, we won't be able to see him on planetary sensors until it's too late. I heard a deep metallic thunk on the desk behind me. Kagan had placed his comm on the surface. An incandescent blue light flickered to life on the top worn metal disc, spilling forth countless beads of light into the room. A handful were highlighted in red, and a dotted line connecting them traced its way across the map. From his previous targets, we figured his next attack would be somewhere in this area. Gone paused as the red cone opened up from the end of the dotted line. Inside the cone, three lights began pulsing yellow. That means there are three likely targets, Daruno, Genkuth, and Carvus. My heart skipped a beat. Carvus? I turned back to the window as the last rays of sunlight were pulled back deep into the ground. The sounds of the city echoed in my head. There were hundreds of millions of people on this planet, all in terrible danger. That's why I'm here, Ty. You know this place better than anyone. If he shows up, I need you to help me find the son of a bitch and stop him before he murders half the quadrant. And how, exactly, do you expect me to track down this deranged, genocidal super-soldier with a planet killer? You aren't going to like it. Try me. You won't be working alone. We have a partner for you. Someone who understands how this guy thinks. I felt the hair on the back of my neck stand up. No, 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 no way. You've actually met before. It was as if I was being watched. No. Stalked. Kagan, I don't like it any more than you do, but you're the only person he's willing to work with. I'd captured a human commander on some backwater world, deprived him of an honorable death. I thought he'd been executed decades ago, and with the rest of his people. Deep down, I knew the truth already. My heart started beating faster. I need to go. I need to get away. I need to find an exit. You can't make me do this. No, I can't. But you have to, for the Confederation, for Garvis. The fear inside me began to boil over. He's going to kill me. He's going to tear out my throat with these fecking teeth. Suddenly, an icy chill ran down my spine. Every neuron in my brain was screaming at my body to leave. Through the door or through the window, it didn't matter. I just needed to get out of there now. When I was frozen in place... Kagan opened the door. A familiar voice, more hoarse than I remembered, called out to me. Hello, Mr. Jutai. It has been quite some time. They say I'm going to help you track down a terrorist. One of my own people. I turned to face my own personal demon. His eyes were just as icy blue as I remembered. His skin pockmarked and wrinkled, and his lips barred in a smile. Those teeth nearly gave me a heart attack. In my culture, we have a phrase for this. Human hunting. Human. Of course, those barbarians had a word for such a horrifying blood sport. I was torn between breaking down into tears and charging this hellish creature with my claws at the ready. We call it the most dangerous game, and it seems like you and I are next in line to play. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1389. Story number one. Living Conditions, written by Radius 55. 
And so he asked me if I knew who his matriarch was. No. Yes. And I thought they only said that in hollows. Senior researcher Galel laughed. He and his colleague, researcher Malloc, were walking the primary teaching center and catching up. Galel had not had anywhere near as much free time since his last promotion, so he savored times like this one. Well, what did you do with him? Matriarch well, R does have quite the temper. Oh, I know, the researcher replied, facial tendrils flexing in a pattern of amusement. That's why I told him that I'd be messaging her the next time I felt he wasn't obliging himself. That, and she told me just last cycle that I shouldn't accept any laziness from her spawn. Malak clapped his prime hands together in amusement at the thought of the fearsome old matriarch disappointed in one of her descendants. Stan corrected, you do have a more arrogant understudy than I do. The worst of mine would never in a thousand epochs try that one. Well, uh, Galeel said, still with an expression of mild amusement. They're not all that bad. I might even take a few as assistants during the upcoming term. Once I beat some of the Sidian notions out of their heads, of course. Like what? His companion asked, quickening his steps slightly. They were finally in sight of their destination, and the twin primaries above them were quite warm. He was looking forward to getting into a climate control of the teaching center. Well, he began, I had one come to me just the other day asking all of these questions about evolution of civilization. I'd given the group the usual midterm project of computational cosmology. You know, develop the parameters for a simulation that would lead to the maximum rate of technological development. The doors ahead of them slid open and a blast of gloriously cool air. Continuing into the Institute while high-order computing, Galeo continued to talk. Oh, one of my brightest students turned in two assignments. First was her normal, excellent work. Rough guess would be just under three-quarters of a million revolutions for a tribal existence to space flight. That is impressive, Malak said. And the other? I honestly thought it was garbage. He replied, I can't imagine any sentient creature evolving on it, much less achieving technological mastery. But she was quite adamant her own limited simulations showed the species would reach it in just 30,000 revolutions. Disbelief showed on Malik's speeches. His own field of high-energy particle interactions wasn't related to Galeel's, but he knew enough to understand how preposterous that claim was. After all, it had taken his own ancestors nearly 15 times that long to go from small tribes to the stars. I assume, he said slowly, she proposed something other than dropping them on a world of functional precursor artifacts. Oh no, that's not all. In fact, if you have a seg, I'll show you, he said as they passed a group of researchers gathered around a flashing terminal. Show me, Malak asked. Yes, it was the only way I could get her to drop it. I had some spare cycles in one of my sim systems anyway, so I let her set the program up to run overnight. You still haven't told me what was so odd about her parameters, Malak reminded him. Oh, those, uh, well, <laughs> she put them on a death world, uh, a, a category 12. No. Yes, I know. Her own sim must have had a bug in it. Maybe the environmental skating was flipped or intellect level artificially magnified or something. But she always had been a good student, and so I figured I'd humor her. Good learning experience, you know. They both flicked their facial tendrils at that. Students always hated good learning experiences at the time that they received them. Ah, oh, and here we are, Glail said, as they arrived at the lab. 
The lock read Lee's identity and opened, revealing a dark room filled with a high-end quantum computing system and the interface to run them. He walked to one of them and sat down in front. A few moments later, he grunted in satisfaction. Take a look, he said, moving aside to let Malak see. On the screen, Malak could see the line after line of data. Here and there, pieces jumped out to him. Planet category 12, species a humanoid, initial technological level, stone age, duration 30,000 revolutions. Then there, at the bottom, were the important fields. Current population, zero. Simulation, complete. I knew it, Galeon was saying with smug satisfaction. There must have been a bugger code. That's the only explanation. Malak tuned the babble out as he continued to look over the logs. There was only a brief summary on their current page, about one data point per thousand revolutions. Still, it was interesting reading. The species appeared to have survived for quite some time, longer than he would have expected on a death world. In fact, they had been present in fairly large numbers just before the final data had been collected. Not much technology to speak of, but still there. And with the sort of environment they had been facing, that was saying something. Malak's attention was drawn back to Galeel as he moved over to another system. Now, if you want to see something really interesting, here's the sim I started last week. So far, it's been tracking our own homeworld's evolution with less than half a percent deviation. Really? Malak asked. That's quite something. He leaned over to look at the screen, only to see it flashing oddly. Um, is this supposed to be happening? No, and I really hope nothing's been corrupted. I'd hate to start it all over again, he grumbled. I'm going to go get tech support. Moving to the next terminal, he tried to open a messaging program. Instead, the screen just showed the same odd flashing as its neighbor. Now, beginning to worry, Galeel hurried to check the rest of the systems. At each, the situation was the same. Screens blinking with odd alphanumeric sequences and not responding to any input. It has to be a virus, Galeel said disgustedly. Days and days of runs ruined by some eggless pukul's fun. He reached for his personal communicator. The only thing left was to call security on. He froze, facial tendrils going instantly still in pure shock. Com unit not even out of his pocket. Strong Galeo? Malak asked, concerned. When his colleague didn't answer, he followed his gaze to the one terminal. The one the first looked upon entering the lab. It alone, out of all the other screens of the room, seemed unaffected by the electronic plate. Oh. There's something odd about it, Malak realized. The logs had been replaced by a few lines of text that read. At that instant, he felt himself go as still as Galeel. There on the screen was an implausible message. You are finally here. Good. We are humanity, and we would like to discuss these living conditions. And if we refuse, Galeel said, tendrils twitching nervously. He wasn't even sure why he responded out loud, but it didn't seem to matter. The interface was wide for both sound and video, and a new line of text appeared. We would prefer to avoid any <laughs> unpleasantries, but uh, just so you are aware, your browser histories now belong to us. We hope that simplifies things. And oh, how it did. End of story. Story number two. Sword and Stone, written by Operation Technician. I've never seen anyone react to the memorial like that, said my guide. I closed my mouth. Why would they? The darkest age was centuries ago, and even then few knew what this nightmarish things looked like. Ancient, secret history. The grinding in my head refused to cease. I thought through the series of events that had ended up with me 
here, in front of this thing. Go to college, join the exchange program, get driven to another solar system and planet, to an arguably prestigious university. Easy enough, given how hard us humans are to get a hold of. So far, so good. But why does this university have this thing in the middle of its central garden? Why wasn't it an advertised site around here? Might as well ask. Why wasn't this, uh, memorial on the brochures? Should it be? The guide asked. It's ugly and boring compared to the other sculptures. Sure. Boring. Why not? Three identical, tall, asymmetrical pyramids arranged in a circle. Two hundred meters tall, without any details or engravings, painted grey. Their proportions, slopes, and strange broken forms were unmistakable to me. And only me. Great void of space. They put a plaza right in the center, between the pyramids. There are benches there, and people, right in the trajectory of fire. No author on the park, just the words, just in case. Every few years there's a motion to demolish it, but it never goes through in case we figure out who made it, or what it means. I snorted, now on the edge of hysteria. Demolish it. Demolish the other two hundred meters of five-kilometer-tall Darkest Age battlecraft. Damage the twenty-meter-thick Jurasteel armor that had been so carefully painted over to hide its energy-dissipating snow-white properties. Scratch one of the machines that killed the gods. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1390. Story number one. Not a bang, but a whimper. Archived document, written by Bond Rose. It wasn't a bang, neither a war, plague, nor famine. No, we went, but with a whimper. We saw all that we had created, and for a while, it was good. The raging bonfire that was humanity came to be known far and wide. We loved, we hated, we raged, we wept. We made even those ancient immortals, the eternal watchers from the first stars, sit up and pay attention to us. Legends spawned of those among us who their faith could move mountains. Faith, being what it was, could not, on its own, move mountains. Faith combined with stubbornness, will, and time could allow us to do anything we wanted. Time, however, seemed to be the limit. We stood on the shoulders of giants, the legions of dead that came before us and reached even higher. But always the horsemen would come around to tell humans that, no, it's not your time. You must stop reaching. You must give those who came after you your shoulders to stand upon. Are you not tired? Do you not need to rest? For we did grow tired, and we did need to rest. But while those individuals died, we did not accept our fate. The raging bonfire grew to an inferno. Man had conquered three of the horsemen, but the lost could only be staved off. We knew that eventually reality would bow to its great scythe. Oh, but we raged. We did not want to go gently into that good night. Eons, we advanced and retreated across the cosmos. Vast were our martyrs, plentiful were our gains. We burned our names across the skies in great swaths of hellish fire. The eternal watchers hid for fear that we would burn them to ash without notice. And for a time, it was good. 
As time progressed and its ceaseless march forward, our advances grew smaller, yet our retreats stayed the same. We fought with the same fervor, but our territory still strength imperceptibly. Why do today what you can put off to tomorrow or next year? Nobody kept an accurate census of the whole of humanity. Individual organizations and nations tried, but companies merged and downsized while nations subsumed and split as they always did. Nobody saw the story that was unfolding. We were nigh immortal, but not invulnerable. Perhaps one of our prehistoric posts put it best. If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? We lived like we had forever, never considering that any day could be our last. Through simple mathematics, the end was visible. If anyone had bothered to look, humanity dwindled. And yet, even in the days when our light was flickering, we still burned bright enough to burn ourselves into the legends of the peoples that we met. We traveled from place to place, and planets became more and less fashionable. Nobody noticed that no humans lived on a certain planet anymore because nobody went there. They'd go back to visit. Someday. Maybe. As humans fell back to fewer and fewer planets, some races thought that we would be weak and safe to attack. They were proved wrong and humanity would advance, only to retreat back to more fashionable and comfortable locations later. There would be population growth for a time, and then it would start to shrink back down. Children were always being born, but you could always put it off to a better time. When you were more ready, when you had more time, later... Eventually. The flickering flame was naught but a glowing ember. Humans still existed. Those who still traveled the cosmos still left wakes in their path. Pity the pirate that tried to attack a human ship. Powerful we may have been, godlike our powers may have seemed, but how many stories do we have of dead gods? And die, humanity did. Some went in blazes of glory, massacring armadas and leaving ruin in their wake. But more died quietly from mechanical failures, ruined air filters, insufficient fuel, miscalculated flight vectors, cryopods in disrepair. And yet, even in this time of darkness, nobody could believe that we were in decline. Things that to others were the most wondrous technology were to us mere baubles, things to be discarded when they no longer held our attention. Humans acted as harbingers of change, for good and ill. Be it the revolt sparked by economic depression due to losing an entire planetary military, both people and armaments, or the industrial revolution created by reverse engineering something a human threw away while visiting. A visiting human could always cause change, assuming that we kept coming, that is. The glowing ember cooled. I sit in my office, alone amongst all my archives. I haven't seen another human since I can't remember when. I've decided to compile a history of humanity so that we may be remembered in ages to come. Looking at the records, I can see myself that which led to a slow decline of my people. I wait. I delay. I procrastinate. No more. When I wake up in the morn, I shall start the process of growing new humans. I will not go gently into this good night. Archivist note. 
Now the human was found dead outside his office the night this document was created. Cause of death was ruled to be head injury due to tripping over a rug. Archivist note. This document was pulled from the archive in the ruins of the former Altaluvian Empire. The Altaluvian Empire was conquered by the Squuria Republic after rumor of a trove of human artifacts circulated. Archivist note. This document was pulled from the archive in the ruins of former Squuria Republic. The Squuria Republic was conquered by the Malkra Co-op after a rumor of looted human artifacts circulated. Archivist note. This document was pulled from the archive in the ruins of the former Malkra Co-op. The Malkra Co-op was liberated from the Democratic Republic of the People's Soviet Capitalist Free Nation. Archivist note. This document was pulled from the hidden archive that somehow survived the brutal purging of information undertaken by the Democratic Republic of the People's Soviet Capitalist Free Nation to all information that did not fit the story given by the Democratic Republic of the People's Soviet Capitalist Free Nation. The Democratic Republic of the People's Soviet Capitalist Free Nation collapsed from starvation due to mismanagement of resources. Archivist note. This document was found in the... Error. End of file corrupted. Estimated loss of data, 90%. End of story. Story number two. A Divine Burden, written by Ryan Tiffic Theory. Divinity is a strange thing. It twists and curls throughout our universe, pressing its indelible arms into the very fabric of our souls. For in the beginning of creation, there was one... But when all is one, there is nothing left to change. So it gave itself of the universe. It gave so that there might be many. It gave so that the many might grow. And finally, outside ourselves, might come true change. Every unity we have met has been unique in their distribution. My people, the core received most strongly the stamp of empathy. The true sight. For eons, we have combed the universe, gazing into the souls of others. We see what others miss through ignorance or self-delusion. And we help them recognize and realize their gifts. Our vision cuts through the fog that we wrap around ourselves, through the masks and mistakes, and opens a path for true understanding. Though we can illuminate, we are no more gifted at understanding than those we gaze upon. To this end, we have long worked with the Satra, upon whom divine wisdom pressed more strongly than any other. Their words flow with crystalline purity, a clarity that remains somehow abstract and grounded. Together we see and they speak, a brief moment of their time to connect the pieces, to untangle the thread of life shaken and frayed and knotted. As self carry us through the deepness, an unassuming race but one embedded with great strength, and iron wills hold their core, providing unbending resolve, a drive to overcome any obstacle and face down any defeat. They form the foundation of every group, of every initiative, carrying us forward when we no longer have the fortitude to carry ourselves. Beyond reliable, their word is as solid as the earth from which we all arose. Enten are different. They have been gifted joy beyond reason, innocence without fragility, 
In all circumstances, no matter how dark or lost, they can tease out a single thread of hope and bind us through it. They drift through our lives as angels, and every moment, every place that they pause has been better for their touch. I sometimes wonder if they are a remnant of the true divinity. They simply laugh and drift on as a summer breeze, inscrutable but benevolent. They shine brighter than stars. Together we opened hearts and sharpened minds, intertwined in peace and harmony. No one part greater than any other, a whole greater than the sum of its parts, perhaps greater even than the one. But then we found them, the outlier, we landed to explore as we had so many before, assuming their shapes and faces, their languages. I gazed into them and saw them for what they were. They had no gift, no unified strength to uplift the species, no strength to support their struggles, to stay their fist. Each was different, but none of them approached even the least of our many species. It was horrifying in a way. So... Many of them so empty inside. It was so innocuous. The event that ended our journey. Two children laughing at a third, insulting it, gently pushing. But we could see the cruelty that lay behind their actions. The emptiness and the agony that drove them. The loss of a parent. And a parent that would have been better lost ate at them. But in the littlest one, in the victim. We saw it. There was no question. True divinity! We ran, headlong through crowds of them, little sparks of it lighting up within each jostled soul, a glimmering wraith of fire trailing behind us. Panic tore at us, at the attention that we garnered, at the focusing of something so much greater than ourselves. We sprinted into the shuttle and ripped off that planet, barely even bothering to camouflage ourselves. As encrypted messages began to bounce across the world, we connected to our traveler and ran. He might ask why we ran, why we continue to flee, what it was about the divinity within them that frightened us, when others, like the Enton, were so beloved by us. What I saw within them, within that little boy, was terrifying. For a single moment, he was consumed by anger, by hate that knew no end. In the smallest of them lay a rage more massive than the sum of any other species. They, so meager, so dull and petty, have fully inherited the divine wrath of the universe with none of the wisdom or vision that gave it context. And yet, each night, as I lay alone in the dark, I find I no longer fear the humans Again, and again, I find myself returning to the same question, forbearing the burden of the universe's own hatred. Are they martyrs, nor monsters? End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers. I would just quickly like to give thanks to our Tier 5 members. 
Elysia Barkey, Pudicule Meridian 117, Cam Maxwell, Caspar Arnholtz, Albarden Gasta, Savage Patch Papa, and Lord Azrakal.